over the last couple of weeks while we tried to get our ducks in a row and took care of some off-site business for BOA and myself. Trust me, your patience is going to be richly rewarded here over the next four weeks because this week is phase one of the final four of BOA Audio season four. Quite simply, four A-list guests, big-time names, legends, superstars in the world of Esoterica, starting this week, of course, with esteemed ufologist Timothy Good. For the folks who don't listen to the end of the program, I'm going to tease right now phase two of the final four of season four, and that is geopolitical genius and parapolitical powerhouse Webster Tarpley. He'll be back on the program next week for phase two of the final four of season four. Then in three weeks, we're going to be talking to an undisputed legend in the world of UFO and abduction research. Don't want to tell you too much about that one right now because it's not going to be taped till Wednesday. And finally, it's all going to culminate August 31st with the BOA Audio Season 4 season finale. I do know who the guest is. The interview has been taped, but I'm going to hold off right now on telling you who it is. All I'm going to say is he was a huge trailblazer in the world of esoterica in the 1980s, slipped into seclusion in the early 1990s, and made a huge return over the last few years This man speaks, and a lot of people listen, and a lot of people react, and he's going to be speaking for two hours plus on the season finale of BOA Audio Season 4. I'm just going to plant that seed for you, let you think a little bit about it, maybe go to the usofe.com or the BOA Twitter feed to find out who the guest is. I'll announce it next week for sure on the program, so come on back for that. But we're right in the thick of it right now, so let's preview this week's edition of BOA Audio. Our guest is venerable UFO researcher Timothy Good, and we're going to be talking about his remarkable and mind-blowing research into the UFO phenomenon. Obviously, I had read Timothy's amazing, groundbreaking book, Above Top Secret, and he's got a number of other books that have come out since then. His most recent one is Need to Know. Let me just give you a little thumbnail look at what we're going to be talking about here. We start with how the U.S.-slash-U.K. relationship has developed over the years regarding UFOs and UFO information. We're going to hear some stunning revelations about Polish biophysicists who witnessed hidden UFO and ET secrets at the Jet Propulsions Laboratory in California, alien bases located around the world, the ongoing conflict between Earth and ETs, as well as ETs versus ETs, the concept of gradual disclosure, the MJ-12 papers and Timothy Good's role in those becoming public, a back-and-forth conversation about the world of ufology today and where it needs to go in the future, plus, as always, tons and tons more. It is really jam-packed with some thought-provoking material from Timothy Good, a researcher who has uncovered some really unique information that may have you taking a second look at the UFO phenomenon. 
having dug into Need to Know and listened to a number of Timothy Good's interviews prior to the conversation, I was just completely amazed by what he has uncovered with regards to the UFO phenomenon. He's bringing out some amazing revelations that haven't been heard anywhere else, and you're going to be hearing them, of course, right here this week on BOA Audio. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Timothy Good, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Worldwide research, interviewing key witnesses, and discussing the subject with astronauts, military, and intelligence specialists, pilots, politicians, and scientists, has established Timothy Good as a leading authority on UFOs and the alien presence, the most highly classified subject on Earth. He's lectured at universities, schools, and at many organizations, including the Institute of Medical Laboratory Sciences, the Royal Canadian Military Institute, the Royal Geographical Society, the Royal Naval Air Reserve Branch, the House of Lords All-Party UFO Study Group, and the Oxford and Cambridge Union Societies. In January 1989, following the dissolution of the Soviet Empire, he became the first UFO researcher from the West to be interviewed on Russian television. He was invited for discussions at the Pentagon in 1998 and at the headquarters of the French Air Force in 2002. He's acted as consultant for several U.S. Congress investigations, and he is known to millions through his numerous television appearances and has co-produced several documentaries on the subject. His first book, Above Top Secret, the Worldwide UFO Cover-Up, became an instant bestseller and is regarded widely as the definitive work on the subject. The fully revised and updated book replacing it beyond Top Secret remained for five weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller list. His third book, Alien Liaison, spent 13 weeks on the same bestseller list. His fourth book, Alien Base, went to number four of the Guardian bestseller list, and his fifth book, Unearthly Disclosure, was serialized in the UK's Daily Mail. His latest book is Need to Know, UFOs, the Military, and Intelligence, and it is published in paperback in the UK and in the US, as well as Canada. His website is www.timothygood.co.uk. Pretty simple, all one word, timothygood.co.uk. Check it out. Check out the books. Amazing stuff from Timothy Good. Mind-blowing material, a lot of which you're going to be hearing this week on the program, but obviously discussed in depth in the various books by Timothy Good. Must read pieces of work from an amazing UFO researcher, Above Top Secret, Beyond Top Secret, Alien Liaison, Alien Base, Unearthly Disclosure, and Need to Know. Check them out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on July 21st, 2009, direct from London, England. Esteemed ufologist Timothy Good on BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Manal of America Audio. Very, very excited about this week's edition of the program. Our guest is a tremendous UFO researcher. He's really been a fixture of the field for just so many decades now and uh, immensely popular and really comes up with some amazing and unique information and has some just tremendous sources. I, I just can't believe some of the stuff that... Uh, that he's come up with over the years, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him. His latest book is Need to Know, UFOs, the Military, and Intelligence, and he is, of course, the hugely esteemed Timothy Good. Timothy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed, Tim. It's great to have you here. I'm really excited about this. Definitely an interview that's been a long time coming. I've been meaning to talk to you for a while now. You know, I've been in this thing since about 2003, and your stuff has definitely been just tremendous and i should of course mention that you are the author of the iconic book above top secret the worldwide ufo cover-up came out in 1987 
And uh, your website, of course, is timothygood.co.uk. Nice and simple for folks to check out there. And a number of other books, Beyond Top Secret, Alien Liaison, The Ultimate Secret, Alien Base, uh, Unearthly Disclosure, and, of course, the latest one, Need to Know. And I probably left out a couple in there. I apologize if I did. Well, I guess I've heard so many interviews with you, and it's always like, you know, you come on and, and everybody knows who you are because you've been around for so long. But I don't know if I've ever really heard sort of, you know, the story of how you even got interested in all this in the first place. So, you know, let's just start out with a little bio background. I'm sure there's someone out there that's been living in a cave the last 10 years and or 20 or 30 and doesn't know who Timothy Good is. So just let's do a little thumbnail bio background on who you are. Okay, right. Well, I've always been mad about aircraft and space travel since I was, I believe, in the cot. So my mother used to tell me, any any manner of flying objects, she wrote in my baby book, uh, seemed to fascinate me. So um, I've always been mad about aircraft, and I still am to this day, and space travel. And in 1955, a cousin in... America, who knew of my passion for aviation and space travel, said, Timothy, do you know about flying saucers? And I said, no. And he said, right. He said, you need to know about this. It's right up your street. And he gave me a book. And the book was The Flying Saucers Are Real by Major Donald Kehoe, which for me kind of clinched it because uh, here were dozens and dozens of reports by military and airline pilots supported by air traffic controllers. And, you know, I always say to people, well, you know, even if the pilots have been drinking, radar sets normally don't. Yeah. And, you know, radar actually is, well, these days, of course, it's incredibly sensitive, and a lot of information about radar is, 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 is highly classified. But, you know, even in the 50s, it was very, very good. It had improved enormously on on, uh, World War II radars. And, you know, there were these things, you know, in our airspace, interfering with aircraft. Um, Pilots were sometimes shooting at them. They were causing um, some planes to take uh, near collision avoidance. And... It just went on and on, and page after page, and so I was hooked. And then later on, I think it was about 1961, I bought a copy of Captain Edward Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. Mm-hmm. Ruppelt was the first head of what became known as Project Blue Book, United States Air Force's um, supposedly, well, it was definitely official, um, supposedly, um, you know, the only investigations that they were conducting behind the scenes, Project Blue Book, and that was preceded by Project Sign and Project Grudge in 1947, 49, uh, 1948, 1949, respectively. And eventually um, that became incorporated into Blue Book. But um, Rappel's book was stunning. He was saying it's all real. You know, he was an Air Force intelligence officer, very good um, military background and so on and so forth. And um, he actually got got into quite a bit of trouble by some of his comments in that book, even though it was vetted. And uh, he kept very quiet about the subject uh, years afterwards. But 
this was a, quite extraordinary. Um, yeah. I was, I, you know, such compelling evidence that I was convinced, and I've been totally convinced um, ever since then that there is a reality behind behind all the smoke. Indeed, indeed. And now, as I said, you've got some amazing sources. I don't know how you do it because uh, <laughs> it seems like you get a lot of great information out there that I'd never even heard before, and, and people do uh, confide a lot of fascinating stuff in you. Um, I guess that's just something that develops over the years as you gain a reputation for, you know, for not spilling names and stuff like that's, that. That's right. That's right, Tim. Um, and sometimes it's just a little piece for the jigsaw, and then I have to wait another two years before filling in something else, and, and so it goes, which can be very frustrating, but um, you, you can't force these guys, you know. And of course, there's disinformation, which one has to be careful with. Sometimes there's very, very good information, which is buried in, in disinformation. So you, you need to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff, and that, that can be difficult. But with the help of a few people over the years, as I say, it helps fit, fit the jigsaw together. As I said here before we started the interview, I read uh, Need to Know this week, and even though the book's been out a couple of years, uh, it's still tremendously relevant, obviously, and people should pick it up as soon as they can, and all the other books. I'm going to warn them ahead of time, above top secret kind of book, you loan it to someone, you're not getting it back. So, because so, I can tell you, when I scheduled this interview, I was looking all over for it, remembered I did loan it to someone, and uh, it hasn't been returned in quite a while. So tell them to go out and buy it themselves if they can, and, and <laughs> right. don't loan it to them, because you're never going to see that book again. It's an amazing, iconic book, and really uh, still cited by so many people. It's such a groundbreaking piece of work. So I cherry-picked a few notes here from Need to Know, but of course we're going to, you know, span all your amazing research into the into the UFO phenomenon in general. And, and one of the interesting things I found here in Need to Know was just that, you know, it's a tremendous book on, you know, the history of the UFO phenomenon really in the world, wow, since like, you know, the before the World War II era. So Right, since the 19 since the 1930s. Absolutely, yeah. And uh I'm not going to ask you about it right now, but I will say there's tremendous stuff in there about the whole, let's just call it a, an Italian MJ-12, if you will, uh, from before the war even. So people want to check that out just for that stuff. But I know you, yes. you uh, did an interview with Richard Thomas at VOA already and talked about that. What I want to talk to you about here is uh, the ghost rocket wave in Sweden and how it was kind of interesting I found that the British came over to Sweden to sort of look into the whole ghost rocket thing but they were trying to keep the U.S. out of the loop on what was really, you know, what they were finding out, which I found really, yes. I found that really interesting because, you know, you always think that the U.S. and the U.K. are on the same page as far as the UFO thing goes, but that wasn't always the case. Well, uh, remind me about that later, Tim, because uh, it's, it's absolutely true, of course. Um, we are very, very closely allied and, 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 and always have been, but... Um, Regarding certain subjects, you say the British didn't want, didn't keep the Americans in the loop, and I'm quite convinced vice versa, depending oh, on yeah. the level, or level of compartmentation involved, you know. But, for example, to give you some indication, in, in, uh, in the 1950s, someone I knew, and we can talk about him um, maybe a little bit more later on, Air Marshal Sir Peter Horsley, who was the former deputy chief of strike command with his finger on the nuclear trigger. He was a decorated war hero um, pilot and uh, he worked f 
for the Duke of Edinburgh and uh, the Queen at Buckingham Palace as an equerry, kind of a military attaché, for seven years. During that time, he was working in the Ministry of Defense, dealing with the UFO reports, the situation, and liaising with his American counterparts in the ministry, ministry's operations room. And he told me that even though he had what was probably called then top-secret atomic clearance, which was um, uh, sort of obviously for the, for the nuclear program, and he with, with you know, his finger on the, on the, the trigger as far as uh, the nuclear force is concerned, mm-hmm. he couldn't get any information about the UFOs, even though he and the Americans were liaising with the Ministry of Defense up to a certain point on the reports coming in and how to deal with them and everything. But he said to me, once, you know, he said, look, come on, for heaven's sakes, you know, I've got top secret clearance, this and that, you know, why? I really want to know what's going on with this, with this UFO stuff. And they said, sorry, Peter. <laughs> and that was it. And it's been like that. I think they do share some information with us, but uh, my information is that they are most definitely uh, in control of the situation. And not as far, just as far as the UFO business, uh, this is rather a touchy subject, but um, I'm, I'm told that uh, the Americans are in control of our nuclear weapons to the extent that we, c- we can't launch them without, uh, independently without uh, the Americans um, agreeing to it and so forth. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So that gives you an idea. And, of course, uh, <laughs> the UFO stuff is, 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 is just as sensitive, in some aspects more sensitive, than the nuclear situation. So um, we, don't, we don't get to know everything, and everything's on a need-to-know basis. So obviously, there is a, um, a sharing of some intelligence on the matter. There would have to be. Yeah, yeah. You tell a great story in the book, too, about... Uh couple of UK guys from the government there going over to the US with like six yes. pages of single typed questions uh, <laughs> dealing with yes. the UFO subject. Yes. Now you asked about the, I mean, I've, you've seen there are, there are dozens of top secret documents. I've reproduced uh, several in, in need to know relating to the so-called ghost rockets of the summer of 1946. They were seen, I would say, principally over Scandinavia. Sweden, uh, Sweden largely, and but many other countries uh, at that time in 1946 uh, reported unknown objects. It was it was uh, worldwide, and the Americans and obviously um, the Brits and other air forces and navy intelligence people and so forth were convinced that these must be V1s and V2 rockets which the Germans um, which had been captured by the Soviets from the Germans well yes true the the Soviets had indeed captured V1 and V2 rockets but uh, they didn't get nearly as many as the Americans got and they were way behind uh, Werner von Braun's team back at White Sands in, in New Mexico in developing and uh, test flying these things. But you have this ghost rocket wave. I mean, th- there were things were being seen, cylindrical objects, some, some of them shaped like a missile, zooming low over, say, Stockholm. They were seen shooting up into the sky, diving into lakes, leaving lakes. There were landings reported of these things. Um, there was a collision with a Saab, a Swedish Saab, Royal Air Force, Swedish Royal Air Force bomber at that time, which was reported in headline news. I reproduced the, the page in, in, in the Washington Post, or I think it was Washington Post, maybe New York Times, I'm not sure. But um, 
these things were very, very real, and they were not the ones or the twos. And this has been discounted for me by very highly qualified experts, such as Bill Gunston, who is arguably the world's lead, leading um, aviation historian who did the forward to need to know. He said there's no way that, that uh, the Soviets could have been producing so many rockets and, and firing them right over Stockholm, you know, for, for, for what reason? I mean, it just doesn't make any kind of sense. Yeah. These were from someplace else. There's no question about it. Speaking of the whole ghost rocket thing, and I was looking in the acknowledgments and was pleasantly surprised to see uh, Klaus Vaughn mentioned there in the acknowledgments. We had him on the show about Two months ago, great guy. Claude yes, Vaughan. indeed. Yes, a, a very fine uh, Swedish. He, he's a he's a reporter by by mm -hmm. trade, and uh, he's a, he's a good, uh, very good investigator. And then just to sort of jump ahead a little bit chronologically, another thing that I kind of found interesting. We're still sort of talking about what the uh, you know the British power structure, if you will, and what they know. Who needs to know? I guess you could say yeah. within that realm, and the whole thing with Winston Churchill asking about. Uh, UFOs to, I think, someone in, in the Ministry of Defense, perhaps, I'm not positive who, they wrote back and sort of blew him off and gave him the thing about the UFO working group that they had made. It was sort of like, that, that was sort of sounded like it was a PR yes. type of thing. Well, well, Churchill said, you know, what does all this stuff about flying saucers mean? What does it amount to? Give me a report at your convenience. And the air staff came back about two or three weeks later and said, don't worry, Prime Minister, we've looked into this. Um, all the unexplained sightings have been um, explained. There's, there's nothing to it. Uh, the Americans have looked into it, too. Uh, it's nothing. Well, of course, that was a lie. Um, or the chap was telling the truth. He simply didn't know the chap who informed Churchill. But you would have thought Churchill would have had a need to know. Absolutely, I, yeah. Seriously, since... Uh, since, you know, I mean, after all, um, especially with his American family background, uh, you'd think that the, the Americans would have uh, let him in on stuff. Maybe they did later. I don't know. I don't have any more information. But certainly what's been released indicates that uh, he wasn't told. Yeah, yeah. I just found that stunning, really, if you think but I think it. what happened, in fact, what, what I'm sure Churchill would have had to have known about the top secret uh, British Flying Saucers Working Group, as it was called, Working Party, which was established in 1951 and, and uh, disestablished the following year. And that was, in my opinion, designed it was by the Americans to, to get a lot of information, A, and B, to discourage the Brits from um, placing too much emphasis on, on reports by pilots. So they had to discredit the best reports, which is why in the 50s they were going to Air Force bases. There were lots, so many sightings at that time. I've got several cases of, of um, for example, um, on, on one occasion, one of two, there was a UFO seen at Farnborough, which, um, which was uh, a testing area for prototype aircraft at that time in, in 1950. And also, of course, they had the, um, the, an the annual, now biannual, air, famous Farnborough Air Show there. But um, in 1950, one of these things, a, a craft came over. It was a large disc making a crackling sound, smelling of ozone. Um, it was seen by several pilots, including one of the top test pilots at the time, on the ground. It came right over this thing could be seen, and there was absolutely no doubt about it at all. And the interviewee, the people who interviewed um, this pilot, 
were from the Flying Saucers Working Party, but they didn't say that. They just said they were from the the Ministry of Defence. And uh, they seemed to be taking the guys very, very seriously. But when, when when they finally learnt... 50 years later, when the reports were released, or some of them, not everything's been released still, it was, it was saying, oh, the pilots had obviously mistaken, you know, th- this was not a flying saucer, this was just uh, some, some conventional, unusual aircraft that was being tested. Well, these were test pilots who were reporting it yeah. at Farnborough, you know, so it was a real snub to them. And um, in 19, I think it was 1950, when all this came out, they were absolutely livid. Yeah, I don't. I think it was 2000. Sorry, I think around 2000 when that information came out. Yeah, yeah, I can so, imagine. So you know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. But uh, again, this was, I think, was planned really by by the Americans who who sort of asked the Brits to to, to play down everything. Yeah, sort of like a quasi blue book situation, maybe. Exactly. And one story that's in the book that I just was completely blown away by too was. Uh, and, and you might have got it from Andy Kiss, uh, is it Kissner? Kissner, Andy Kissner. Yeah. yeah, fantastic stuff from him in the in the book too. I want to track oh, he's this a, guy he's down. A great and, guy. And he's, he sounds he was, awesome. Yeah, um, he's terrific. And it may have come from him, but I'm not sure. But I'm sure you can elaborate more on it. And this is about the Polish biophysicists who came to America for some kind of conference or something at JPL, and they brought them down like four levels into the basement of JPL and showed them. Alien, you know. Right, that's, no, Andy, I didn't get that from Andy Kissner. I I got this from a a Polish uh, fellow researcher who who knew the Polish biophysicist. And this was in in 19, I think it was in 1974, if memory serves, um, this biophysicist, together with a very small but international team of French, British, and Italian physicists, biophysicists, were given some materials uh, by NASA, which had come from, from um, the unmanned um, uh, space flight center in, in Pasadena, California. They were told that these materials came from um, behind the Iron Curtain, and they were absolutely astonished. I mean, there was, there was something that took, I don't know, 2,000 degrees centigrade to get to the melting point. There was some very, very unusual metals and other residue materials. And... Um, to cut a long story short, they were, they were completely puzzled by this, but they believed, you know, well, this is probably Soviet stuff, you know, I mean, we can't talk about it and everything. But then in 1977, there was a party for a retiring, uh, the chap who'd been in charge of, of this project or whatever other projects they, they were doing at, um, at Pasadena, but um, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, that's, that's, that was the place where, yeah, where, you know, which, which, which uh, they you know in charge of the unmanned space program and there was a party to celebrate this guy retiring and I imagine they just had a few drinks and uh, this uh, director um, of the group said to the scientists say look you guys you know I, I got something to, to show you let's go down and they went down and they actually broke in <laughs> broke into this broke the seal several levels below ground um, and went into this secret, uh, top secret uh, vault area where they were astonished to recognize the materials that they'd been examining earlier, but more astonished to see some other exhibits, including part of a skull encased in a sort of um, perspex type thing Mm -hmm. and part of a hip bone. And they were labeled from the two incidents in New Mexico. There were no dates given, no places given. But uh, this was clearly 
uh, part of a hip, a hip bone of, of one of the alien creatures and um, part of the skull, large section of the skull, actually, as you can see from the drawings in, yep. in, in Need to Know that the biophysicist made. And they um, were really perplexed by all this, and uh, they were told that they, these were indeed from someplace else, and they wouldn't say exactly where and when it happened, uh, when these incidents happened. But they did learn quite a bit that um, most interesting, one of the most interesting things uh, this biophysicist learned was that their blood, the blood of these creatures, was different from ours in, in that um, they reacted badly toward nitrogen. So it, it was believed that they, they, they breathed a mixture of hydrogen and, and helium. Um, and, and that's what had perhaps caused the, you know, the decease of some of these beings. And that's, that was also um, a theory put forward by other people I've mentioned in the book, um, including General George Marshall, who spoke to um, a British um, guy who was qualified uh, in some areas of, of medicine that, um, you know, some of the bodies had burnt to a crisp when they went inside the craft, but it wasn't from fire. And they assumed this was because uh, of, you know, the atmosphere being being fatal to them. Yeah. But um, anyway, also this biophysicist said that the skeletal structure was, was quite different from that of a chimpanzee or a baby or anything like that. And these, uh, these guys were biophysicists, and he took a, a very close look at um, this uh, skeletal structure and, and said that, you know, the actual structure of the bone was, was somewhat different from, from ours. So I find that a very, very credible story. And uh, I know the guy who, 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 who gave me the story, and uh, he's credible, and uh, he kindly gave me permission to write about that. And um, I, I hope one day to be able to meet that, meet that guy. Yeah, absolutely. It's just astonishing to think that there's these displays somewhere, you know, in the basement of these secret places that, <laughs> you know, you just want to go yeah. there and see it so bad when you hear when you hear the story. And NASA, you know, people NASA's always denied, um, you know, but actually they were officially the reporting center um, at some time, as I as I've been able to prove from from NASA, NASA's own documents, um, the, the official repository of of UFO reports. Yeah. Yeah, it's just just unbelievable. One thing that came out in uh, your previous book, Unearthly Disclosure, and you mention it here uh, in the new book, too, yeah. um, and it's something that I had heard way back before I even got mixed up in all this. Uh, you know, when I was first getting into, you know, studying UFOs and stuff, I, I heard an interview with you, and what you said really stuck me for a long time, and that's that you've received information from some of your sources that suggest there's alien bases, Oh, in, yeah. in a variety of different parts of the world, I guess just talk oh, a little bit more about that because I find absolutely, it and I've, I've learned I've learned a great deal more since that time. But um, I, I was told um, way back in in the nineties uh, by uh, a guy who's a highly respected Washington aerospace journalist with a military background in um, army army intelligence, the army security um, section, and. I've known him for many, many years, and he told me that based on information acquired from someone at the Joint Chiefs level, an Air Force guy, uh, a general in the, at the you know very high ranking, obviously in the Joint Joint Chiefs, that 
Alien, he learned a tremendous amount, which I published um, first in, in Unearthly Disclosure. That, that's still available, by the way, um, still available in the American bookshops. And he learned, one of the things, many things he learned was that there were, aliens had established bases all over our planet, um, very, very large bases, some of them under the sea, some of them within mountains, typically. Some of them created very quickly by their technology. They're able to deal with matter in a far more uh, efficient way than we can. They don't spend, you know, yeah. decades digging holes. <laughs> they have the technology. Some of these bases are vast. Um, and um, there's certainly two large ones in the Pacific Ocean. I was given some specific locations. Um, I can't remember everything offhand now, but certainly in, in terms of countries, there was, there was, they knew there was a base at that time. This information, by the way, dates back to the late 80s. So how true it is now, I haven't the faintest idea, but there were quite a number of bases in the United States, certainly one in the Caribbean, which I'm convinced of is Puerto Rico, that area, um, in the, off the Atlantic, uh, in the Atlantic, two huge ones in the Pacific, which I've mentioned, one of which was um, way off the coast of Hawaii, and there were, of course, unidentified, what we would call USOs, unidentified submarine objects were, were involved. Um, there were bases in Australia, uh, certainly one in Australia, which they said was near or at Pine Gap, which is Alice Springs area, and I think it's more likely not actually at Pine Gap, but, but not far, not far away, all too far away. Uh, other areas they mentioned, um, um, nothing about Great Britain that I know about. Um, I'm aware of, since then of, of other, other bases, some of them very, very large, such as uh, one in, in the Mediterranean, which uh, we can perhaps touch on later on. But, um, and, and certainly I believe at the Poles, uh, there were bases, and I've subsequently learned from others the many bases in, in South America, including bases in lakes and off the coast and um, underground. As I say, wow. usually the the underground ones are contained within mountains or, or beneath them. Yeah, just astonishing stuff. Now, do we know anything about like why they have these bases here? If there's some kind of uh, yes, I hate to well, use the agenda term, but do they well, do they have a plan? The aliens that we know of, that yes, you know of. Yes. Well, first of all, which aliens are we talking about? The problem is, Tim, that there are many aliens who have a vested interest in planet Earth and have had for a very long time. This is what I've been told, mm -hmm. including information that's come to me much more recently. Um, some of them are definitely, and what I'm saying now is partly what I've pieced together myself and from other sources, yeah. people who've had you know, extensive contacts with, with aliens. There are some aliens who are very, very similar to Homo sapiens. Indeed, they're responsible for us. We are... Um, if you like, a, a hybridized um, alien. Mm -hmm. um, the, some of them have been here, I think, longer than we have. And they've long had bases, um, especially since the time humans started developing everything they, they wanted to keep out of the way. Um, so some of them have always been here. And they have a vested interest in this planet and its survival. 
And so do others, the, the ones with the BDIs, the so-called greys, or that type, because there's more than one type of, of so-called uh, bug-eyed aliens. But yeah. Definitely. Some of them also have established bases here. There's a conflict of interest. There has been for quite a long time. I, I go into that um, at length in Unearthly Disclosure. There is a conflict. They, the, the ones that have less than good intentions, um, I'm putting that mildly, um, have a vested interest in the planet. And before I continue, let me just say that all the aliens that I know about say that to a certain extent it's true. Earth is unique. Certainly not in the galaxy is it unique, but within this neck of the woods, it is unique. They say it's a veritable mine of, of uh, fantastic biodiversity. And um, I agree. I, I, you know, <laughs> they, they say, you know, there's more water here than practically anywhere else, and, and we need that. We need all sorts of other things. And some of these aliens, the little alien buggers, as I call them, need need humans to hybridize. They are engaged and have been engaged in a hybridization program. That's the purpose of the abductions. Yeah. Um, and I didn't learn this until relatively recently that the purpose is, according to them, to make human beings more uh, peaceful. But according to the military people who, who, who deal with these uh, guys periodically, that's not their intention at all. They're after this planet. That's the bottom line. They're after this planet, and they are trying to um, hybridize tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. I don't know. Yeah. I honestly don't know. Uh, to make a, a, brief, a mixture of them and us. Um, so that we can inherit some of their more docile characteristics, supposedly, huh. to make us more more um, acquiescent and more vulnerable to being taken over, and that's apparently the ultimate goal of these uh, naughty guys. They want to they want to take over the planet. Good news is, Tim, that um, there are other guys who who you know have our best interests at heart and with whom we are we are very closely related, who are not just technologically advanced, but they're also, some of them, very spiritually advanced. And so we are getting a helping hand to deal with this situation. And apart from that, there is a conflict um, between some of these species about the Earth, over the Earth. So they're, they're getting on with a, with a, a situation <laughs> themselves, and we're sort of piggy in the middle. Yikes. Now, that kind of segues well, I guess, into into the just the question of, you know, there's long been talk, uh, you know, of the Holloman Air Force Base thing and that the U.S. government at high levels is, you know, in communication with the aliens and working with them or, you know, trying to figure out what they're all about. What, what, what's your take on as far as, you know, what the relationship of the U.S. government is to these various species? Like how, well, you know, how much... How much interaction has there been? Quite a bit. Yeah, I, I know Bob Emmenegger, and uh, he, get, he, 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 you know, he, he told me a lot about that um, Holloman story. I, I think, I think quite a bit of that is disinformation. Mm -hmm. um, whether it actually took place at Holloman, I don't know. But there has, there have been many meetings between ETs and and military and uh, a few political people, like like Eisenhower, for example, and and a few other 
presidents yeah. since then. There's no question about that. And these have taken place at various uh, locations around the world, Not certainly not just Holloman. Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely uh, these things have happened. Um, our guys have got all the proof they need, and they liaise with some of these guys. And the other thing I've learned is that um, we most definitely have developed phenomenal aircraft and spacecraft which are, you know, streets ahead of anything that, you know, might be on the top secret list um, recently, been test flown, that sort of thing. Yeah. This stuff's been around for several decades, and I'm talking about highly advanced kit, which can probably um, travel, if not at the speed of light, close to it. I'm not sure about that, but if you consider what Ben Rich said back in 1993, um, this was at the... Um, University of California in LA Department of Engineering he gave a talk during uh, the last slide he showed showed a saucer zipping off into space and he took a few questions and he indicated that you know we have some very advanced stuff which of course I can't talk about and some people cornered him afterwards including um, two guys I know one of whom is Jan Harzan I don't know if you know of him. He's in MUFON, and uh, he'll talk to you about it if you need to, to talk uh, with him. He was there, and he started, uh, ask, they started asking questions. There was about a group of ten of them, I think, something like that, and they said, come on, tell us more. And he said, well, he said, you know, we already have the technology to fly among the stars. We found the missing equations. This was in 1993, there, and wh whatever you can imagine we have words to that effect. Yeah. And he also said that all this stuff is contained within black budget programs, phenomenal sums of money are involved, and it would take an act of God to get this stuff out for the benefit of humanity at large, <laughs> such is the opposition to, to revealing any of this stuff. So what I'm saying is that the Americans have very advanced spacecraft, um, including um, the manipulation of gravity. I can tell you that for a fact. Yeah, it sounds like just based on, you know, from reading the book and stuff, and, and <laughs> pardon the pun, I guess, or pardon the cliche, but it does sound like almost there's been this, like, military-slash-industrial-corporate coup, in a way, yes. uh, centered around the whole idea of needing to know, and it's like, you know, there's this this power base of people that have the need to know, if you will, and, and yes. you know, who, who who decides that? I have no idea at this point. And, well, there, and, there, there are sort of people, you know, <laughs> um, in the political field, a few people, you know, it's a government within a government, quite yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, and in the military, I mean, uh, you know, you might get a four-star general who hasn't the faintest idea of what's going on, but there might be a two-star who has a need to know, or like, you know, the engineers dealing with these stuffs, pulling them out of the hangars or whatever, um, who know more than a four-star or, or five-star general. Yeah, yeah. It's Depending. Yeah, it's just really uh, frightening in a way to think that, you know, yes. at some point this, this government within the government was created at some point, you know, in yes. the 40s or whatever. Yeah, and the facts are just, I mean, I'm told, uh, are considered so outrageous that um, it, it would just be too shocking to bring out all this information, so it has to be gradual. That's what I'm told. There is a plan to bring this stuff out gradually because there's no way they can sit on it forever.
Yeah, yeah. So that's what I was told, and that's what I wrote in my last um, paragraph of, of of need to know. This this is the wisest course. It will come out gradually. Yeah, yeah. I have that here in the notes. Actually, I'll skip ahead yeah. to that because uh, I yeah. did I did um, sort of just want to ask you. Uh, you know, don't you think? And this is just like an opinion question, I guess. But it seems like it's taken an awful long time for this gra- <laughs> for this gradual disclosure to take place. Like, yes. you know, we're about sixty. You know, we got to be about, you know, the general public, I, I mean, has to be like 60 years behind what they yes. know at this point, I, I, at least. No, at least. There's, there's no question about that. And I asked uh, a friend in Washington once, um, this was about, I guess, five years ago. I said, look, come on, uh, you know, you say it's going to be gradual disclosure, um, you know, um, I'm so and such an age and everything. Um, <laughs> you know, when am I, uh, is it going to be? You know, when, when is it, when is this, when is this stuff going to come out? Really good. And he, he just said two words, stay healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, so I'm staying healthy. Yeah, it's one of the maddening aspects of, <laughs> <laughs> of being interested in this whole thing. Cause you know, you just keep hearing yeah. that it's gradual and it's like, this is really gradual. Yeah. This is not that, you know, we yeah. are really not getting anything good. Yeah, uh, and ever it seems, but let's and, hold out hope, I guess you know. Yes, and and it, it, it's amazing, you know, how much that the news, to, to the extent that the news is manipulated. But that's always been the case. I mean, in wartime, um, government takes over, <coughs> you know, controls, manipulates um, what 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 the press comes out with, and that, this, that that's certainly true regarding this subject. That's for sure. It does feel like things are starting to get a little bit better as far as the media goes, yes. but you know. Maybe Maybe that's better, but but I don't know what the best answer is. Just for us guys that are, you know take a serious interest to, to pump out as much serious information as we can, without an agenda. Just put the facts out. Unfortunately, I won't name names uh, at this stage, but there are some people whose egos get away get in the way. They have their own agenda as far as public disclosure of of this stuff is concerned. Well, they get a, quite a shock if, if when the information does come out, and I don't think they're going to get a look in. Yeah. If they think, if they think they're going to play a large part, you know, in, 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 in all this. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the big concern, I think, from a lot of people in ufology in general, too, that, you know, once this whole thing comes out, the ufologists are going to be completely marginalized and forgotten yes. about, and, you know, some yes. will be hailed as visionaries for, for having looked at it, but others yes. will, you know, just be completely uh, closed out of the whole thing as the academics yes. come in and all that other stuff. Right. It's uh, it's kind of unfortunate in a way, but in, when you look at some of the people in ufology, it's probably for the best. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> now, you do say, just to stay on this disclosure thing a little bit, you do say, uh, like you said in the last paragraph, you said, you know, in the previous book, I think, uh, is what you said, uh, that you know, you were of the opinion that, hey, come on, let, let, let's get going on this. The government can, I mean, the people can handle it, and uh, it's time to tell them. Then you say, based on what I now know, yeah. you know, you're in favor of the gradual disclosure. I guess, what is the yeah. what is the thing that made you change your mind that, that you know, that you're basing it on? I think um, learning that there's a definite uh, conflict situation and um, to, to tell people that, you know, here, guys, we're, we're dealing with a situation. There's not a hell of a lot we can do about it. People are being abducted. Um, uh, they plan to produce hybrids that are going to take over and so on and so forth. They pretend it's for our own good, but it's definitely for theirs. I think that that's fairly shocking. Plus, 
all sorts of other complications. There is a conflict going on, yeah. as I said earlier, you know, between us and them, because, as you know, we can talk about that more, the Americans and, and many other air forces have been uh, involved in many uh, dogfights with uh, UFOs and craft have been knocked out of the sky. Uh, you know about the, the retaliation that took place in, in, in um, May of 1947, which I, I, I cite in, in Need to Know, even, even you know, including um, newspaper records at the time, when Werner von Braun started launching um, V2s. There were saucers trying to knock these things out of the sky, and so the Americans started trying to shoot them down, and they were successful, according to my information. This came by Andy Kissner, former um, aerospace engineer and um, state representative for Las Cruces. So that, that's been happening. But then they retaliated um, at that time, and there were hundreds of aircraft crashes all over the world, not just in the United States, following the Americans firing um, shells at these things, and, and in some cases, I'm told, missiles with proximity fuses, which, which made sure that they brought, brought t targets down. And some of these UFOs were definitely vulnerable. I know people say, oh, they're far too sophisticated for this and that, you know. But funnily enough, they are very vulnerable, or were, to the more conventional types of shells Whereas anything that, that's electronically guided sent to them, um, they can deal with very, very easily. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, but there's, there's also so much going on. Um, I don't know whether, uh, how familiar you are with the so-called W56 group. Some information has come out on the internet if, if, uh, if you guys uh, put in W56. W for whiskey, 56, and it, it, it's, it's all about a group of aliens of the human type, very similar to us, definitely related to us, some of them who live hundreds of years, they've been on this planet, some of them for a very long time, they've established bases, and this was specifically in Italy, in 1954, 1956, they started to infiltrate, they started to communicate with select people from different walks of life, and um, there's a book about about this, and even more information has been released uh, from, from a few other sources. But this book, I, I will say, it's called Mass Contacts by Stefano Breccia. That's B-R-E-C-C-I-A. Mm -hmm. Stefano Breccia, who I who I, whom I know, and um, you can get it. You can get it um, on the internet. Um, you can get it from Bob Girard's excellent Arcturus books. And it's absolutely fascinating. The only drawback in the book, which which Stefano uh, agrees with me, it's very badly. He didn't pay for a good translator, and uh, even though he speaks quite good English, it really is very very confusing. You sometimes, yeah. But um, you get the general drift of it, and there are very fascinating descriptions of you know face to face. Interviews, getting they became friends with these guys um, in, in in several parts of Italy. They took some of these UFO researchers at that time, many of whom were sworn to secrecy and still are to this day. Yeah, um, those who have survived. They took them to their underground base, which was vast and apparently extended from Ascoli Piceno in central 
uh, northern Italy in the Abruzzi Mountains, there was an exit point there, right out, you know, like about a third of the way out into the Med- Mediterranean Ocean, subterranean, of course. Wow. Details, and, and some of these guys went there, and they talk about that, and the men and women they met there, and some of them were, there were all types there, they liaised with different races, they said there was a serious conflict situation, we're, on, we're the good guys, uh, we need to be here to defend this planet and to help the situation. <laughs> and um, there's a tremendous amount, it's profound, there's some really seriously uh, useful information, and hilarious too. I mean, one of the, the funniest things is that some of these guys just, well, one in particular, one in particular is about about nine nine feet height in height at oh, least, wow. and uh, there are some there are some very funny stories of how you know he he drove a car one of our cars and um, <laughs> he had a great sense of humour himself, and these guys they all spoke perfect English they spoke many many other languages as well they communicated with various uh, handpicked people from all over the world. But uh, the funniest thing was this, they couldn't sit in a car seat, so, you know, he had to drive this car with the seat taken out. And things like that, absolutely um, insane in a way. I mean, who would believe it? Yeah. Um, but they have, they had, what people said, well, you know, weren't people astonished to see, you know, this tall guy and everything? And, and some people were. Other people seemed not to pay much attention to it. And I think... Partly because these guys are able to influence people's reactions. Yeah. Even among a group of people. And, Strange. Um, I, I, you know, I've had some experience of that myself. So, you know, I, I'm convinced these people are, some of these people genuinely have our best interests at heart. And they are thousands, maybe millions of years ahead of us on the, on the, the evolutionary scale. They have phenomenal telepathic abilities. They have phenomenal ways of manipulating matter. Like they would, uh, and they would get some of these guys in Italy to to arrange for a delivery of fruit to be left on a lorry, fruits and vegetables for their base. Like you know, tons of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, it's one of the most hilarious stories, and um, it will be paid for. And they would they would pay in kind uh, to the, these uh, liaison people they were working with. And it would be left on the on the on the truck, this this huge tons of stuff, and you know suddenly it would just dematerialize. <laughs> They'd beam it all back to their base. Oh wow! It's very funny, but I think it's a very 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 profoundly important book. So there you are, mass contact, Stefano Breccia. Yeah, and, and it's the W56 you said. That um, it's about them. It's about that group, um, and more information has been released. Um, about that by someone on online. Um, I'll, if you like, I'll forward that to you. Yeah, absolutely, the definitely. Link. I'll forward we'll, the link. We'll do some linkage. I'll link it up on this the group, show page. This group, um, as I say, they started to, 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 to sort of open out, as it were, their, their degree of infiltration in 1956, so they sort of called themselves by the code name W56. And, and, uh, well, just to sort of piggyback on that, I guess, if, if they were sort yeah. of opening up in the 50s, why do you think... It's. It sounds like it must have stopped at some point because that was, you know, 50 years ago. So. Uh, yes, I think probably there's stuff still going on, but to a, to a, to a far lesser extent, openly at any rate. Yeah. They call themselves the Amicizia, which means friendship. friendship. Interesting. Mm. Now, over the years, the 
you know, the shape and, and style, I guess you could say, of UFOs has changed. You know, it was like balls of light and cigars and saucers and now black yeah. triangles. What do you make of that changing face of UFOs? Well, first of all, Tim, uh, there are reports, even in, in Project Blue Book files, of, of very, very few, I admit, but of triangular craft and uh, chevron-shaped craft. Yeah. Just, just one or two. You know, like a craft at one moment appeared like a chevron, and the next minute it was, um, you know, a fully formed triangle. Yeah. But yes, it's true that they seem to have changed over the years. I take it different different groups are involved. Maybe they they you know they bring out their old um, antique vehicles from time <laughs> to time, you know, just to give them an airing. I don't know. Yeah. But there are different. There are definitely many, many, many different types, and uh, many of them have changed. And of course, some of them are ours. It's going. To, it's becoming right now. It's going to be very difficult for people to say for sure if a certain craft is one of ours or one of theirs. And I think the only way you can really tell is to is to use telepathy. If you know, yeah. if people encounter these things, um, if there's no if there's no response. Um, from a telepathic request or whatever you you want to send transmit to them, um, it's quite possible you know that there are U.S. Air Force guys in there or, or whatever. Interesting. Yeah, that makes or sense because a lot sometimes of people... there are joint there are joint uh, <laughs> joint programs involved when they're both flying with each other apparently. Yikes! And some of the this is very interesting. I I, I learned that some pilots are cleared for escorting some of these craft with conventional planes like F-16s and huh. um, F-15s and things like that. Now, that brought to mind immediately to me the thing in Stephenville, which uh, people wondered, you know, why these planes were going into to, to restricted airspace, sort of as if, as if they were monitoring the, the, the flight of, of this, that, that, that huge thing that was seen. Yeah. Yeah, so, so maybe they were actually that's... working with it, if you, if you were. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. All outrageous stuff, Tim. <laughs> One other thing you mentioned in the book that you uh, said that you, you know, were talking about the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, the AFOSI, which seems to be yes. knee deep in the UFO thing. And you oh, said yeah. that you had knowledge uh, that you that you'd heard or something that uh, in the 1980s, over a hundred uh, AFOSI folks had knowledge of aliens in one form or another. Yes. I mean, that's just yes. mind-boggling. I, I, I was told that by, by a, a reliable source, yes. Definitely, they're, they're involved because of the, the um, security and policing aspect of, of this whole thing. I mean, and, and you also need to know that a lot of the so-called UFO stuff is, is buried within the nuclear programs, nuclear stuff, materials, and programs. Yeah. So it's very difficult for, for you know, Congress, say, to get access to see this stuff. Or, in fact, well, it's impossible, I, I would imagine. So a lot of these programs are, are very, very highly um, camouflaged. Yeah. It, it's just remarkable, too, to think about, because, uh, like you said, over 100 had knowledge of aliens in one form or another in the 1980s. It's like, yes. you think that... You think that this is like, obviously it's a hugely well-kept secret, but then, like, as you look at it closer, there are quite a few people that seem to know what's going on, in one, yes. as you say, in one form or another. I mean, it's not... Oh, absolutely, but the most, of course, can't, can't discuss it, and, and even if they're brave, they've got to think of their families yeah. and, and pensions, and, um, you know, I, I've... Uh, 
I can't go into any kind of detail, but some of my friends who have been very helpful over the years suddenly disappear off the scene and you, you can't get in touch with them. And it's not that, you know, you, you, you're no longer friends because I've become close friends with some of these people, but uh, they can't. They just, you know, yeah, they just, uh, you, you know, well, it communications, all, all communications cease yeah. of, any, of any type. Well, it does seem like there's almost too uh, like a situation where we know a lot about what was going on in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but then it starts to get murkier as we get closer to yes. contemporary times, and it's like yes. I, 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 we're hoping, I guess, that you know the ufology community can start to catch up, I guess, to that era. Yes, because like we know like who some of these players were back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but I mean we really don't know who's pulling the strings right now with the UFO story and with the UFO information anymore, as far as contemporary times. No. Which is troubling, I guess you could say. <laughs> and uh, one of the other things I want to talk about, in the book you say you're pretty convinced that the Bermuda Triangle is involved with the whole UFO thing. So uh, oh, I guess just talk a little that's, bit more that's, about that. That's a, just an alien base uh, buried down there in the, in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, southern apex of which is Puerto Rico, the entire island and um, the oceans and subterranean areas around there. I've, I've been to Puerto Rico seven times. I did a lot of research. Uh, there's absolutely no question that these things are seen regularly by lots of people. I spoke to them, underwater craft uh, things. I, I want, I, myself, with my girlfriend, um, in 1997, I think it was, saw something. Yeah, this is one out of the seven trips I went there. I saw something fairly fleeting, I have to say, frustratingly. But this was uh, um, in the evening above the hotel, uh, a circle of orange light, which I, I thought was some kind of hoop at first, but it was moving in a kind of jerky fashion. And suddenly it just shot uh, toward the sea, dove into the sea. Yeah, because we had Gian Cassar on earlier in the year, and uh, he's not ready to completely jump on the UFO part of it, but it does mm -hmm. sound like there's something going on there, and, and the more you look at it, you know, yeah, it's hard not to really give the UFO aspect yeah. of it credence, because yeah. we're looking at something serious here. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention, if, if I can interject here, Tim, that, yep. that, you know, we have to look at the positive developments and encourage it and let everybody in the media know in a sort of rational sensible way that people are making all these statements. I've got quite a few on my, my website. For example, you know, interviews with, with uh, Edgar Mitchell, who I know, um, and I respect him highly, and he's come forward, as you know, with a lot of stuff. And um, a few weeks ago, there was a press release by Gary Heseltine, who's a, a friend of mine, a colleague. Uh, he's a police, a British uh, transport police uh, detective in Yorkshire, and uh, he, he runs the Profos Group, which has hundreds of sightings by, by police officers. He specialized in that area. And um, he's collaborating on a film script about the Bentwaters Woodbridge incident of December 1980. Oh, yeah. The U.S. Air Force twin base complex there. And, um, of course, uh, uh, Colonel Charles Holt was the deputy base commander at the time of those bases. And th very recently, um, he's come out with, with a, a very, very interesting, a 
official, well, not official, but a, a public statement. And you can see it on my on my website um, if you need to. It's a press uh, press release by Gary Hesseltine. Let me just quote what what uh, Chuck Holt says. Okay. I wish to make it perfectly clear that the UFOs I saw were structured machines moving under intelligent control and operating beyond the realm of anything I have ever seen before or since. I believe the objects that I saw at close quarters were extraterrestrial in origin and that the security services of both the United States and England were and have been complicit in trying to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham by use of well-practiced methods of disinformation. I believe Gary's script will lift a veil of secrecy about what really happened at Rendlesham, events that were and still are of tremendous defense significance to the United Kingdom and indeed to the rest of the world. And that was uh, put out on 25th of June. And you can see that on my website, plus a lot of other um, interesting things, including on my website, is um, the interview with Buzz Aldrin on, on for a British television documentary, which was about 2005, 2006, in which he states that the Apollo 11 crew did indeed see a, a UFO en route to the moon, during the flight to the moon, and it was seen by all three of them. And uh, he describes it. Uh, he says it was bell-shaped object. They observed, took turns looking at it through monoculars, uh, a monocular, and they said, it, and they were, they were, they didn't know quite how to deal with it. They didn't want to sort of alarm NASA or, or, or get uh, too much publicity worldwide about it. So they just, they first of all asked where the, the you know, the, the booster stage, the last booster stage of the, of the, the flight was. And they were told it was six thousand miles away because they didn't know they didn't know what to say. You know, they sort of asked, you know, yeah. how far away is the third stage of the rocket, whatever it was. And uh, NASA came back and uh, said um, about six thousand miles. So the guys in the Apollo Eleven knew immediately that they couldn't, they, you know, they weren't mistaken. Yeah. Now that raises an interesting question because uh, uh, you may have touched on this in your other books, but I don't recall anything and need to know. What's your take on? You know, the whole idea that there's ETs on the moon or Mars. About, sorry, about ETs on the moon and Mars. Yeah, bases or whatever. Both, both definitely both. They have bases on Mars and they have bases on the moon. Um, and as a matter of fact, I published quite detailed information in Above Top Secret. You, you may remember um, a friend of mine. I can now give her name because she's deceased. She was in MI6. That's the British equivalent of it's really known as the Secret Intelligence Service, it's yeah. or MI6, but it's the equivalent of your CIA. And her name um, is, you know, I can I can give it out now. There's no need to give it out, particularly on this on this program now. Yeah. But she yeah. is deceased, and she gave me information. Uh, she'd been at a NASA conference in Italy, um, during which she overheard Armstrong tell a German professor of NASA that there definitely had been uh, craft on the moon, lunar surface, and they were very frightened, and they were large. They, not just one. They were very, uh, they felt very intimidated by it, and um, and uh, that, that the CIA had ordered a complete cover-up on, on the operation. And I know the hotel, my, my friends, you give me, you know, the room she was in, the room, Neil Armstrong, she, she actually heard the conversation through 
um, a vent in the bathroom. <laughs> this was an Italian hotel. And uh, she heard this conversation going on. And so she thought she'd uh, challenge Armstrong the next day. And she did. And said, you know, I couldn't help overhearing her. And Armstrong confirmed it all, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't go into too much, uh, much, much more detail. But he did confirm that it did actually happen, and they were very, they felt very threatened. There's a lot of people that seem to think maybe that there's this, like, more serious, I guess you could say, Martian connection, where, you know, the, the ETs are Martians, or that, you know, with the whole face thing and all that stuff. What's your take on all no, that? No, there's no face on Mars. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> uh, however, I, I wouldn't be in the slightest bit surprised. I'm not a pyramidologist. I haven't studied those. But I'm sure they will find um, uh, evidence of former civilizations. The aliens themselves say, uh, in my book, Alien Base, I've got a fantastic um, uh, contact story going back to 1920 when Albert Coe, a Canadian, encountered an alien being who became a friend of his for, for life, virtually, and had regular meetings with him. Uh, it's a long story, but, um, you know, he used to meet him in, sometimes in public places and everything. And this chap gave the whole history of uh, the aliens' visitations to Earth and said, you know, we actually colonized the solar system. We came first to Mars. Um, and then Mars lost its atmosphere. It was a catastrophe. Many of us lost li our lives. And uh, we took the risk of... of uh, um, trying out, went to Venus, and they said that they occupied several um, high plateaus on Venus where the atmosphere wasn't nearly as bad as we are led to believe. And, uh, and then Earth, which was absolutely ideal, and they, and they settled there, and they were responsible for, for um, generating Homo sapiens. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> On this day six years ago, some guy in Houston ran over an elderly man while going after a home run ball. And this woman took the law into her own hands and started whacking the guy with her cane. Bravo, honey. Bravo. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Seriously, she should have just gotten up and just whacked him across the face one. And why is this guy sitting there letting her take the heat? One story in the book that I really loved, uh, and it was told to you, and then you put it in the book, but it was it sort of goes back to this whole idea of the conflict between the, the UFOs and the humans, if you will, or the Americans. I'll put over the book huge here because, you know, I've heard so many UFO stories uh, in the last six years that it, it sometimes I just sort of my eyes just sort of gloss over when I hear another one. But the stories in this book are amazingly compelling UFO cases. Um, and this one in particular is about they're trying to intercept the UFO or whatever and the the UFO shoots some kind of beam at them and disintegrates the plane and pretty much just disintegrates all the metal. And the two pilots, or the pilot and the other guy, are, are just like sitting in midair. And they yeah. fall down to the water. And one of them apparently lived. I'd love to hear that guy's story if, if he ever yeah. comes forward. There have been many cases like that, Tim. Many cases all over the world. And you look at those cases in Puerto Rico. I spoke to an entire family and other witnesses um, who on two, two separate occasions in Puerto Rico um, in the, I think it was the early 1990s, I can't tell you the date now, but they saw these giant triangular craft absorbing um, F-16 Tomcats, yeah. U.S. Navy Tomcats. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've been taking these guys on board and I, God knows what they're doing with them. I was them, just but, thinking uh, that, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's been going on for, for, for quite a while. The interesting part about 
the book too and what you're what you're coming out with here in this stuff is like you know you just don't really hear too much from the ufo community about this whole aspect of the story about there being a conflict maybe with the ufos and that maybe you know that well that there's this war going on it seems like ufology d does not want to go there because they're trying to get well people. i'll give you another reason i i mean i've let me tell you, you, you may know that, um, in, in, uh, need to know, I exposed for the first time that, that, uh, Dr. J. Alan Hynek, who, who I had a great deal of respect for, so this is, this is not to his detriment by any means, was actually CIA, as well as being a consultant to the U.S. Air Force. He was a consultant to the Central Intelligence Agency's Office of Scientific Intelligence, Scientific Investigations, OSI. Yeah. And, you know, he's the guy that formed QFOS. Um, do you ever get any really interesting information out? I mean, there are some very good researchers, but uh, they've been infiltrated. They've been heavily infiltrated, as has MUFON, by the way. I won't go into names at this moment, but yeah. um, people should be aware of that. You know, and a lot of, I'm quite sure, a lot of important stories, probably of the more outrageous variety, get, get sat on. You know, we're sort of still um, debating, you know, whether they're extraterrestrial, whether when you know these guys know that it's been <laughs> they're here. Yeah. You know, there's 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 a conflict going on, there's a war on basically between uh, not just uh, alien races but but us as well and everything. Yeah, that reason yeah, they can't come out with that because um, you know they they've got to toe the line. What you're saying now raises another sort of issue just about the UFO field in general, and that's just that it sounds like you're fully entrenched in the ETH camp and that you've gotten the information that satisfies your, you know, opinion that these are definitely extraterrestrials, but within yeah, ufology, can, can that... I, go ahead. Yeah, can I interject there? Um, <laughs> with qualifications, Tim, with mm -hmm. qualifications, some of these guys are Earth beings to the extent that they've been longer on this planet than than have we yeah so extraterrestrial yes but so are we if yeah. we're a hybridized species we are, we derive from extraterrestrials okay so yes but people also think oh well you know he, he he's just you know stuck on nuts and bolts it's absolute nonsense um I'm well aware there are beings from other dimensions who may have a part in all this. Indeed, I know that aliens themselves can manipulate dimensions and do all sorts of miraculous things. Right. And this has been going back for millennia. It goes back in time. And uh, so that there are sort of what people would like to say as sort of more esoteric um, aspects of, of the origins of, of these beings. Okay, yeah, all right. So I, I see what you're saying now. It's sort of clarifying but, um, a little bit that, that you're not just saying that these are people coming from out of space, but, you know, they no. can be doing all kinds of different stuff. E exactly, exactly. And uh, as I say, it's not visiting. They're here. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. They're here. And we're here, and that's the problem, or at least one of the problems. And some of these other guys present a very serious threat as well. But, you know, I tend to think, Overall, that you know, um, I tend to fear humanity more than I do 
extraterrestrials. Yeah, I yeah. just dread to think sometimes of the future with these these nuclear weapons and some of these hotheads in the Middle East just starting off a, a conf, uh, you know a conflagration. I lie awake at night sometimes thinking about that, you know, and I think, well, let's just hope that some of these alien guys, uh, you know, can sit on our stuff and just knock it out. I mean, they've shown on numerous occasions, as you know, the, the ability to knock out um, missile silo controls and all sorts of things. So. Um, I like to think that they might uh, intervene. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about one of the stories that's in the book that you talk quite a bit about, and that's the Sid Patrick story from 1965, which you give a lot of credence to and is quite fascinating. And it seems like, before I let you answer here or before I let you tell the story, it seems kind of interesting because on the face of it, it's almost like a classic contactee story, and so many people now have been written yes. have written off the contactee stories. But maybe there yes. are some nuggets in there that we need to go back and look at, and maybe the Sid Patrick story is Absol- one of those. Absolutely, and he's still alive, by the way. Uh, I know where he is. Um, I don't want to hassle him, but he he, he won't re- reply to anybody. He won't communicate with anybody about it. But uh, no, this I mean this happened back in 1965, and um, Sid Patrick was. Um, Air Force Reserve guy, qualified pilot, and he claimed to have uh, encountered a craft of, of uh, unknown origin near Watsonville in, in uh, I think, 75, I think roughly 75 miles south of San Francisco. It was about 75 feet in diameter and 30 feet high. And long and short of it is, um, uh, he just this voice came from the craft, you know, do not be af- don't, do not be afraid, we're not hostile, and uh, he kept running away, and they repeated the phrase, and they said we mean you no harm, and eventually they uh, he, he he was taken on board, and he met these people. Uh, he said that they were basically very similar, um, basic appearance, had clean cut features, wore a type of flying suit that covered the body fully. There were seven other men on board and one woman described as extremely pretty. And they were all about five foot eight inches to five foot nine inches tall. And he said they all looked about between 20 and 25, energetic and intelligent looking, features similar to ours, only one feature that would differ, and that was that their faces came to a point much more than ours, sharp chins and noses. Adamski confirmed this. George Adamski confirmed this, by the way. A lot of things that... uh, he, he never talked about um, publicly, but that's another story. But anyway, and they just showed him round the craft, and um, he thought that they communicated with each other by mental telepathy because he could see that, you know, he couldn't. There was nothing to in, in, to indicate anything otherwise. But they certainly, or well, he seemed, he seemed to hear their voices at any rate. They spoke to him. And he was shown different rooms, um, different instruments on board the craft and everything. And there was like an oblong lens in the center of the craft, in the floor, with a huge magnifying uh, three-dimensional effect it had. So he could see, and they showed him their navigation craft, which is like a mothership, just like Adamski described. And uh, he thought it was about a 1,000 miles out from Earth. Interesting. And um, interestingly, we we can perhaps get into the case of Gary McKinnon. Um, oh yeah, a friend of mine. I haven't seen him for a long, long time. Um, we've had huge, major headline stories about him over here in the last few weeks in in, in our Daily Mail. 
And one of the things that uh, he told me, which is in need to know, is that one of the things that he plugged into when he was hacking the uh, U.S. military computers, they were using Windows 95, by the way, which horrified him, and they weren't, <laughs> they weren't even using their passwords, was what looked like a giant craft, a huge craft suspended in space um, way out from off from Earth. He couldn't tell exactly how far it was, but this story of Sid Patrick reminds me of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had Gary on uh, a couple of years ago, yeah. and a and, uh, fascinating story. I hope he's doing well. I hope things work out for him, but we'll see what yes. happens. Yes, it's it's a long story, and I won't go into the, the, uh, <laughs> the contradictions of the Extradition Act. That would get... Uh, we have a transatlantic... Uh, argument about that possibly yeah. <laughs> no i'd probably be, i'd probably agree with you on that i, I don't think they yeah. should be bringing gary over here but we'll, we'll see it's, what happens there's some very very interesting aspects to that story which 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 haven't come out but anyway sid patrick that was absolutely on the level and uh you know he asked where they came from and and they said they were from a planet in back of a planet which we observe but we do not observe them he didn't say that we couldn't he just said we didn't he said that, um, as you know it, we have no sickness, we have no crimes, we have no police force, we have no schools, very long life expectancy, and so on and so forth, no yeah. money. I think that's an absolutely genuine room. And, and at one stage, they took him into a consultation room in which he said for the first time in his life, he felt the presence of the supreme being. So he said that, you know, in addition to their very high scientific level, they were very advanced uh, um, spiritually. He, he wasn't just some slouch, right? He was. I thought he was no, like, right. involved with the military or the army or something like that, right? Yeah, right. Well, thank God anyway. You know, some of, some of these guys are good guys. And talking of the military, um, I've been told that some of these people from elsewhere are indeed working with our military. I found that incredible. I'm still not sure if I believe it, but certainly in, in positions... Um, where they need to be, I would imagine. And one of the things Gary McKinnon uh, discovered was that uh, there, were, there were lists of fleet-to-fleet -fleet transfers. I'm sure you're familiar with this. This oh, is yeah. what he saw online in the secret um, Pentagon, NASA, and um, several other files that he, he uh, logged into. And fleet-to-fleet um, -fleet transfers and lists of, of what he thought were ships. He looked up the names of these ships, and he said there were none of them listed in, in, the, in the Navy. They were USS this and that, but they, none of them were, were Navy ships. And he surmises, based on what he saw, this craft in space, that these could well have been spaceships, either ours or, or theirs or whatever. And then, the, 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 you know, there were the references to the non-terrestrial officers. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what the hell is that? And I, I, you know, I believe him. He's an honest guy. He's not lying. I mean, this is what, what are, who and what are non-terrestrial officers? Yeah, my only disappointment, I guess you could say, with the Gary McKinnon story is just that we don't really have too much, uh, like, tangible stuff to go on. No, we don't. Do you know what I mean? As we far don't. as ship, like he said, you like he said he looked up the ship names. I wish he had written them down so we could have them. You know, uh, or well, not just that. You know, but uh, who knows? He maybe you know he's. Uh, I hope he's sitting on some info <laughs> for I, us I, for later. I, don't, I honestly don't know, but um, I'm sure the Americans are worried about all that. 
Yeah, yeah, because, you know, if there was a list of non-terrestrial officers, it would be really good to have that list of names, because yeah. you never know. I mean, you he might... told me he didn't he didn't print anything out. He was on pot at the time. That's another uh, sort of negative aspect of the thing. You know, he was smoking pot at the time, and, and he is truly obsessive. Um, you know, his mother couldn't get him down to come, come down for supper and stuff, you know, because he was always on the computer hacking away. But um, he did, he did, he did uncover some very, very interesting material. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely, yeah, that's for sure. Well, you're also really well known, of course, for the whole MJ12 documents thing and yeah. all that stuff that came out uh, in Above Top Secret. And how I've only heard the stories like secondhand about what was going on at the time, but it sounds like there was almost like a, a race to get this information out to people because you know you had it over there in England and yes. And, it, came uh, out, it came out in my book, and I think that was in June of, of uh, when was it, 1987, I think. And I was the first to publish it. So um, then Bill Moore and Jamie Shandere came out with it, I think, as soon as the book came out, you know, now that it was in, in, you know, in the public domain, so to speak. What, what do I think about it? Well, I still disagree with, with Stan. I think those documents are fabricated, but, but very cleverly. But I think essentially the names are probably on the level, are accurate. I think that not all, but a lot of the information is is on the level. But the documents are not are not the real thing. That is that is my opinion. Um, there was an MJ12 group, and I'm convinced now, thanks to information from Andy Kissner, that um, the majestic group was derived from. Uh, Gerald Zacharias's Z12 group, which was founded in in the 1940s, um, it's part part of of uh, these divisions that were set up at Los Alamos at the time to handle compartmented information. And one of their remits was to investigate the UFOs, which were then, you know, they were seen over Los Alamos and all these places every other day. Yeah, they were buzzing them. So this top secret unit, above top secret unit, was was set up, and uh, so I do believe there was such a group. It might have been magic, M M A J I C. Um, it might have been just M J. Um, there's, you know, the acronym has been explained in in various ways, but um, I think I think probably what Andy Kissner suggests, or rather what Dr. Robert Wood suggests is correct. I can't think of it right now, but it's, um, I'm just, just trying to have a look here, see if I can find it. I can't remember everything from memory. I was <laughs> I could. It's but, okay. Uh, anyway, here we are. This is Dr. Robert Wood, who, by the way, um, I've listed, I've listed practically all the names of the top secret working group in the Pentagon, UFO working group, mm -hmm. of which Robert Wood, who's known to all of us, uh, was, was a member. Uh, he believes that MAJIC was formed from Military Assessment of the Joint Intelligence Committee. Okay. Um, Andy Kissner believes that MAJIC and MJ-12 could have formed from Manhattan Engineering District Joint Chiefs of Staff Integrated Command, Project Y, Division Z, that was set up um, by uh, Gerald Zacharias, the physicist of Los Alamos. So... You know, there's still possibilities. It did happen. Basically, the story is true. Uh, so there was an, definitely was an MJ-12 group. So what do you think the motivation was for getting that information out there in the 80s? I think, and this is purely my own opinion, that 
it was done with people who had knowledge. They had knowledge how to fake the documents. They knew most of the members. They knew a lot about it. They'd been given a lot of information. But they wanted to smoke out, in publishing these documents, they wanted to smoke out some people who really had been um, associated with the group, and it worked. Dr. Eric Walker, British-born famous physicist, was one of those who talked to, I'm trying to think of the name of the guy now, very, very good uh, and brave Californian researcher. Anyway, uh, in, in a recorded telephone conversation, he said, yes, there was such a group. I was associated with it, but you'll never find anything more about it. So my advice is to steer well clear. Things like that. It's all on a, on a verbatim, on a, on a recorded conversation. And, wow. Uh, so he was one of them that came out and... You know, because he thought, he thought that, that uh, because information had been published, you know, you could read about it in the papers, partly following, following publication of, of um, Above Top Secret. You know, he thought, well, they released a lot of information about this now, so I can mention something. <laughs> and uh, he fell into the trap. <laughs> Excellent. Nice. Now, you mentioned the, the 1980s UFO working group. So do you think this thing's just, you know, sort of been self-perpetuating since? Well, that's a totally different group. Oh, okay. Totally different group. I think that's probably relatively low, low, low level. All right. Definitely, definitely. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm trying to wrap my mind but, around who's, you know, who's at the top of this pyramid, if you will, of UFO information. Well, I'm convinced. I can give you a few names. Uh, There's nothing new about it. I mean, certainly um, Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, has long been involved. He's one. Um, I think uh, Cheney, um, a very good friend of mine. Um, was a good friend of, of Bush Jr. And about four years ago, at the White House, at a party, this friend of mine said, well, come on, you know, tell me, you know, what have you been, what have you, what have you been told about the UFO thing? Because this guy, who's a, fr who's a friend, is, is a journalist and, and very knowledgeable on the subject, extremely yeah. knowledgeable. And uh, Bush stiffened and he said, ask Cheney. <laughs> And that's just one, you know, um, I think Cheney is, is just one of those in the chain of command, if you like. Yeah, yeah. See, it's, um, it's interesting. What you but there are many other military, there are military people, there are people in, in corporate, with corporate interests. Um, yeah, chances are people that aren't even household names at all that you wouldn't even know, you know what I mean? Names yeah, that you wouldn't recognize quite, at all. Quite probably, they just have to stay in the background. And, I'm, you know, it's a, I'm sure it's a, you know, it's a flexible situation. I but I don't know. I, I, I could go on giving other many other suggested names, but um, well, the, the Kissinger name is interesting because you don't really hear him associated with UFOs too much, at least as far as my recollection goes. Well, right. I mean, well, people spend time rubbishing the whole thing. You know, They're, it's so easy to discredit the subject in the press, as you know. I mean, it's just you know, it's just so easy to to belittle everything and um, discredit witnesses and talk about flying saucers and little green men. Yeah. As even the press over here are doing, you know. I mean, there have been editorials in the main papers, you know. Why, why are they extraditing this man? Uh, you know, he's a, he's a nerd who's only interested in, 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 <laughs> in flying saucers and little green men and stuff. All that nonsense, you know. You know. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it's, it's endemic, and uh, we, we've, got to, we've got to get through that some, somehow. You raised an interesting sort of uh, statement there that we should follow up on. It's just that, like, you know, you say we have to break through that. Um, you know, I try to ask a lot of different people who are on the show who are really into the UFO subject and are, are hardcore, serious, you know, esteemed researchers such as yourself. 
if if you could, and, and obviously this is impossible, but if you could, you know, get to the helm of, of ufology, if you will, you know, what do you think the UFO field needs to do to to move well, I'll this? tell you, let me tell you my wish list. Yeah. I did have money at one time, thanks to the success of my, my, my early books, but that's a long time ago, and I'm very good at spending money, and I don't <laughs> like saving it. And um, I had a great time. But what I would do now, if if I had the money, if I had if I had you know like like fairly big money, which I've never had seriously big money at all, but if I you'd need big money, if I could get someone to sponsor a New York Times ad, I'd put all the facts, just the facts, no no uh, you know no no slant on it or anything, just the facts, all the military testimony. Um, all the pilots' testimony and so on and so forth, political testimony from intelligence chiefs, majors, generals, a whole lot, uh, saying, you know, that it's all very real and this and that. And the full page in the New York Times, I don't know whether they would publish it, but, I mean, you can imagine that would cost, I don't know, I guess. What would you think a full page advert the New York Times would cost? Oh, boy, I don't know, quite a bit, I'm sure. Although, given the state of newspapers today, you touched on, that's kind of been my idea for a while, too, to do, you know, you're sort of saying that we need a PR, a public relations yes. sea change for ufology. Absolutely, and you need someone with a huge amount of wealth to support that endeavor, not just in, 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 in the press, but online. And I know that, uh, you know, the paradigm research people are, are doing a, a good job to an extent, but... It's, it's got to be done without any vested interests um, in terms of agendas, like agendas. Oh, they're all here. They're loving space people coming here, you know. And, right. And uh, there's this energy stuff that was being hidden. Well, we've got all the, all the free energy stuff we need already. <laughs> uh, believe me, we've got we've got advanced forms of propulsion and energy, but it's being, of course, withheld, uh, as Ben Rich said, you know, yeah. from the general public. But I think it would have to be some breakthrough in the media that um, that can't be manipulated or discredited, which is not going to, it, it wouldn't be easy because, you know, the powers that be are powerful and something would be suppressed or, or otherwise discredited. I don't know. Yeah. We definitely need that kind of sea change of public relations because... Uh, I mean, have you got any ideas, Tim? I mean, you, you said you sort of tended to think towards the sort of big advert. Yeah, right? yeah. I would I would think some kind of sweeping, you know, not just the New York Times. If you couldn't do New York Times, just, just do, you know, an advert in newspapers in all the major, you know, a handful of major cities, New York, yeah. Boston, L.A., Chicago, Miami, you know, and if, all on the same day and really, uh, yes. and, and try and get across the idea that that we just want people to take a second look at this, yes. that it's a national security issue, yes. and that the, the government hasn't taken a serious look at it publicly since the late right. 1960s, and it's time to take a, a, a fresh look at UFOs because, you know, we want to put this mystery to bed. Yeah. I think that, isn't you know... It and, and, ironic? And, yeah. Isn't it ironic that, that um, of all papers, the National Enquirer actually produced, um, as I pointed out in several of my books, the most accurate reporting on, on even some of the most more terrifying stories that were happening in Brazil. Um, I can tell you this. Bob Pratt was a very good friend of mine, a terrific journalist. He spoke... Uh, 
Portuguese. He was in Brazil a lot of the time. He was sent over, no expense spared by the National Enquirer, with other journalists all over the world, went all over the world, gleaned the most fantastic stories from everywhere, some of which I've reproduced. Having checked with Bob, he said, I investigated this story. We went out there for three weeks. We spoke to all of it. It's absolutely right. They haven't changed anything in the Enquirer. It is accurate. Absolutely. And yet, yeah. of course, the National Enquirer, no one's going to take it seriously because yeah. it's the National Enquirer. At that time, a certain period, not the same anymore, but um, it turns out that the Enquirer was owned by the CIA. And some of these guys could say it was a way of getting out, getting the truth out to people. But, of course, <laughs> it's an inquiry. People imagine it's all hocus-pocus. Exactly. Yeah, that's all covered really well in uh, Terry Hansen's book. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic book. I mean, I have, I have well, as I've indicated publicly in my book, you know, I have enormous admiration for Terry Hansen's uh, yeah, he's, book. Yeah, he's a great researcher. It's, it's and terrific. One of the best uh, books out there. Isn't it just? And I think maybe we need to take the tack that, Instead of coming at people with what we think we know, just to say that you know we're we're not positive on this stuff, even though you have outstanding sources that have told you this great stuff, like you can't you can't go on national TV and and show them anything. You know what I mean? So no, we need exactly maybe to get across because everybody seems to think that that people who are interested in UFOs are just true believers, and maybe we need to get across the idea that yeah. you know we're not true believers. We're just trying to find out what the answer is. Mm-hmm. And sort of re- reframe who who UFO people are and and what the mystery really is. Yeah, right. I agree. But it's going to be very difficult. <laughs> I mean, I've only been in this like six years, but I'm already disillusioned with the whole idea that we're going to get the answer anytime soon. And you've been in this for decades, so I'm sure <laughs> you, you've heard it, you know, uh, five times the amount I have. Um, but I want to get your take on the whole sort of um, Obama mania, if you will, that's been going on over the last uh, nine months or so, that he's going to be the one that does it. This is this is the breakthrough we've been waiting for and, and all this hullabaloo that's been surrounding Obama. Well, is this just something that happens every time a new president listen, comes in? Listen, uh, I think so. I think so. Um, he would be very foolish were he off his own bat to come out with um, anything, you know. He would have to take strong advice, and he would be advised as to what to say and what not to say in the interest of national security. I'm quite sure about that. So I don't think he, I mean, he'd be, you know, he'd be he'd be done away with, I'm quite sure, if he broke ranks. Yeah, yeah. It would have to be a concerted effort. We talked earlier about the gradual disclosure idea and, and sort of how the media yeah. attitude has changed since probably the O'Hare story sort of started it, and then Stephenville kind of got more... Mm-hmm. Uh, respectable coverage. Do you see that yes. sort of thing happening right now? Yes, I do. Now, I, th- I think um, Nick Pope's a, a, a very good friend of mine. Of course, you know he's he's, he's Minister of Defence, so he he sort of tends to support the uh, official line of the British government and everything. But you see, he managed to get uh, an extraordinary article published in the New York Times last year. I think it was about a year ago. It was practically a full page. Stressing, you know, that this is real. There have been there have been incidents involving aircraft and planes attacking and, 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 and near misses and this and that, everything. I mean, that would not, I am convinced, hundred percent, that would not have appeared in the New York Times unless it was part of the disclosure project, or just not the disclosure project, but disclosure yeah. of official disclosure. That yeah. would not have appeared. The real because, disclosure project. You know, six months before that. 
I can tell you, I was in, I've been in touch with, with like Washington per, uh, Press Corps, the, 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 cause I have a, I have a press card. So I can talk to a lot of these journalists and they're all very knowledgeable on the subject, but they know perfectly well that, um, you know, it's to be, it's to be glossed over. It's to be ridiculed. And, uh, they're very well, very well aware of the facts. But, uh, this is why it's kept out of the serious newspapers. But, uh, that, that was a break with tradition and it, it, I think it did a lot of good and all sorts of other things happening. People, people like, uh, you know, the former governor of Arizona, mm-hmm. Symington the third or whatever. And, uh, you know, he's a pilot and he said, he said finally admitted that he saw one of these giant triangles in Phoenix in, in 97. And other things indicate certainly last year, not so much this year yet, but I think I think it will happen. People have come forward, retired military personnel. Like like I mean, this this uh, statement by by Charles Holt is is quite extraordinary. I think, and um, we've certainly had a few late last year. I think it was in fall. We had um, a chap quite high up in Royal Air Force who was in charge of radar for southern England saying that, you know, he tracked dozens of these things in in, the 1970s and they were definitely from elsewhere, you know, this and that. And Ministry of Defense in the UK, what we've had and still have actually is what's called the 30-year rule, 50-year, 75- or 100-year rule, regarding release of, of official information, okay? Yeah. But um, in 2004, we got a Freedom of Information Act uh, that was uh, um, part, came into power, and uh, you've had one, I think, since the 70s. Oh, yeah. At least. But um, everyone thinks, oh, we're getting Ministry of Defense secrets. Great. You know, big stories in the press. All the press are covering it. They're, they're saying, you know, and what they're doing is an- anticipating hundreds, if not thousands, of requests from the media and from ufologists about, you know, secret stuff uh, withheld by the MOD. They're just putting as much as they can out, you know, by the thousands of pages. They've Thousands of pages they've, they've been doing over the last uh, 18 months or so, released quite regularly, you know, like every, every six months, sometimes less than yeah. that. And every time you get newspaper headlines, top secret files finally revealed, it's absolute bollocks. <laughs> none of the, none of the reports have been even secret. The highest classification in 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 ninety nine percent of cases has been confidential, which is a, a very lowly grade of of security. Right, right. And, and I was amused to see you know top secret files re- revealed for the first time, and they had this report shows a man who was nineteen seventy eighty sorry nineteen eighty. Three uh, was encountered a, a UFO beside a uh, canal in Aldershot in Britain, you know, and it landed. And he was taken on board and then released and everything. And this story's come out for the first time. And here's the top secret reports. The reports were written by me in my with my type. Um, <laughs> they just released them with my sk- sketches that I'd submitted, uh, sketches by by uh, the witnesses son actually and all the details I had submitted that report having investigated the case sent it to the Ministry of Defense just as an, you know I thought they might be interested so suddenly you know I, and that's not the only one I've seen other reports of mine <laughs> which are which are announced in the press as, as top secret files released by the Ministry of Defense <laughs> so 
nothing really, one or two really interesting cases have come out, I, I must say, but in, on the whole, of course, they're still sitting on the most sensitive stuff. Yeah, and part of the issue, I think, too, with some of these file dumps that's gone on, too, like in, in France, and I think another country uh, over there did it, or maybe it was Brazil, too, but it seems like we're, we're getting a lot of cases, but we're not really getting any analysis or... No, of course not. I mean, just just today, actually, um, I've got from Brazil. Uh, they're going to they're going to translate them. The principal researcher, uh, their, um, AJ Gavard, mm-hmm. who who I trust, he's a he's a, he's a lovely guy, straight, very good researcher, excellent. Um, he says that that he's you know they're going to be translated. It's going to take a a, a while, but. Um, um, he says some of the cases are very interesting indeed, especially that extraordinary Operation Plate or Operation Saucer, depending on, on the, the, the translation, which was set up in the 1970s by the Brazilian government. And Air Force intelligence people went into this area in the Amazon where people had been abducted and zapped with rays of light. And the, and the, 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 the entire team of intelligence officers had close encounters with alien craft, really close, seriously close. It actually affected their eyesight permanently. Oh, wow. Radiation from these craft, and uh, they confirmed it was all real, and um, that was, uh, you know, all genuine stuff. And all the information about that is, or at least most of it, is is coming out um, in these Brazilian reports. A lot of it, in fact, most of it's out already, but it's going to be translated um via AJ Gavard, so stay tuned. It'll it'll be on it'll be available on the net. <laughs> a lot of other governments too. Yeah. I should say have come out with, with documents. So they you know, even if it's it's not what we want, uh it, it makes the general public more aware of what's going on and, you know, hey gosh, well these these guys seem to take it seriously kind of attitude, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely good for us. It's just uh yeah. It's like those UFO TV shows. Sometimes it's good for the general public, but the UFO folks are sometimes disappointed because they're not getting what they want out of it. So, yeah. But we need to remember that, you know, we can't be preaching to the choir, I yes. guess you could say. We need yes. to convert. <laughs> but to go back to newspapers, I, I'm astonished that, that um, you know, the, the media doesn't really pay much attention to what's, what's in, in, in my book needs to know. I mean, for example, I've got the story of the 10-year top secret Soviet UFO research project in the 1970s, yeah. set up by Yuri Andropov, former KGB chief and, and um, former president for a short while. And this was top secret. There were four million soldiers, you know, involved throughout the territories of the Soviet Union who'd been trained what to look for and take take uh, statements from witnesses and everything and details and photographs and God knows what else. It went on for 10 years. And there was probably at least a million civil servants involved. And uh, this all came out um, some years ago. And you'd think that someone would pay attention to that. You know, here's the Soviet government spending millions, using millions of of, uh, uh, soldiers and stuff, and lots of generals, high-ranking generals involved in studying the UFO thing. But not a bit of it. They just... I don't know. I just find it extraordinary that no one takes that kind of stuff seriously. Yeah, you wonder what's going on there, but I guess, you know, like you said, the it's probably a combination of uh, the people in the media yeah. know but they shouldn't I'm, talk about uh, yeah. it, and they're afraid to talk about it. Yes, and then and then I'm brainwashed in, in, in the positive sense that I, I know all this stuff's real. The general public, likewise, is brainwashed to believe that it's, it's, it's little green men, you know, so... 
that's the way the situation is. I've said kind of before on the show, too, that I do think this gradual disclosure is a generational thing, because I'm only like 30 now, and I think more people of my generation are just of the opinion that UFOs are real and that the government's covered it up all this time, and maybe people yeah. of the generation before me you know, were of the opinion that it was hope, that it was bunk, and before yeah. that it was something else. So it, maybe it's just as time goes on and more people – uh, this this belief becomes second nature, then yes, it'll be yes. easier to disclose. Yes, a great deal more acceptance. So I'll give you an example. About three, uh, three or four years ago in Cambridge, which, you know, you've heard of Cambridge. Oh, yeah. The uh, university uh, town. This guy, Andy Martin's his name. He writes for the Independent newspaper, which is, a, you know, it's a major sort of uh, serious uh, paper here. Mm -hmm. um, he and he's just gone to pick up his son, uh, who'd been playing violin in a school concert with his wife, and they were walking along this road um, after the concert, about, I don't know, 8 or 9 o'clock at night or something, it was dark, and this huge structured object filled the sky, it came over, he could hear a sort of throbbing, humming sound coming from it, he said it was at least the size of a jumbo jet, and it was a craft, it was there, it was real, and he looked to his wife. He says, do you see that? She said, yes. He looked to his son, who was, I think, I guess about 10 or something. He said, son, he said, do you, do you, is that a UFO? And the boy said, yes, Dad. Where are the chocolates? <laughs> now, that says something, doesn't it, about, you know, your sort of uh, feeling that it's a generational thing. You know, maybe the, it will become just, just accepted. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I kind of have a similar story to that, too, because uh, like I had worked in a school for a while, and an elementary school, and they sort of do themes every week, and, and one week it was space, and amongst all the, you know, the planet stuff, and, and these are little kids, like five, six years old, and amongst all the, all the space stuff, like shuttles and planets and everything, is a, is a big inflatable alien. So, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're conditioning you know, whether it's yes. just a societal thing or not, but they're conditioning people just to to be ready, I guess, and accept this sort of thing. I mean, you have to look at it from the point of view of authorities. I mean, look at the church, for example. I mean, it's all very well ha having angels, you know, blowing trumpets and flapping their wings, you know, as long as they, they keep a, a, a long way away. But if you've got highly advanced spiritual beings, and I've been told that J.C. himself was certainly an E.T., a hybrid, and that his, well, he, his father was actually the angel. Angel means messenger. Gabriel, who was a human-type being from elsewhere, mm -hmm. if we're to believe the Bible. I wasn't there, so I don't know. <laughs> but if you think about the abilities of Jesus and his ability to levitate, telepathy, um, healing, all abilities attributed to some of the more spiritually advanced aliens, it makes you think, and I think, and I think he was. Now... Do you think the church's power might be somewhat compromised if they were to realize or be told that there are thousands of beings very, very highly spiritually involved who are actually among us, um, you know, based here on this planet and uh, there's an active um, situation going on? I don't think they could handle all that. Yeah, yeah, it would be, it would really be a problem, I think, and... and yeah. Well, we've seen the Catholic Church come out recently in the last few years saying it's okay to believe in aliens. Yes. 
Yes, I think it was last year, or the, probably the year before, when he said, you know, that some of them are, are probably like us and more and more spiritually evolved. I thought that was very, very significant, if he did actually say that. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like they're laying the ground. I think it was actually Monsignor Balducci who said that. But I mean, he, you know, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have said that unless he'd had sort of uh, papal approval, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. The late Monsignor Balducci passed away last year. Actually, uh, yeah, you didn't know that. No, I didn't. No, he passed away last September. Uh, Yeah, I did an interview with him, actually, when he came over to America for the X conference a couple years ago. Oh, my goodness. That was you, lucky saying. That was interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I can... I'll forward it. Uh, I'll forward the email to. You. I mean, I'll forward the uh, the link there to our interview with him. So you definitely should I, check love, that out. I'd love that, and I'll send you this thing about the W56 group. Absolutely, yeah. And if you get a chance, dig into our archive. We got quite a few uh, interviews with people you know: uh, Gary McKinnon, Klaus Vaughn. Oh, great! Quite oh, a I'd few love ones. to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, we've been talking about this whole UFO thing, and and I don't want to go into a realm that you may not know too much about. But, of course, um, you know, interest in ufology got bumped way back by the whole 9-11 event. And that ties into the whole idea of, like, a new world order. And I just wanted to know if you if you thought any of that stuff had anything to do with the UFO cover-up, if, if there's some sort of connection between all that. Mm. Well, I think you'd need to refine the questions, Tim. <laughs> um, I have not investigated 9-11. I think there are a lot of crazy theories out there, as I'm sure you're aware. Oh, yeah. But there are also some people who are not crazy, who I trust, who are very knowledgeable, who, who um, think that there was some jiggery-pokery going on. And, I'm, and I include myself in, in that because I think, at, at the very least, I'll say this, I think it was allowed to happen. Okay. I think that's quite possible. I'm not saying that is the case. It's possible that it was allowed to happen to create a sort of situation where, um, you know, the war could the war could happen. Yeah. To refine the question a little bit, I guess, do you think do you think we're headed towards some kind of global government in a way that that may be more conducive to then in turn e- ET slash UFO disclosure? Wow. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, that's sort of a speculative type. <laughs> yes, sure. I, I, I mean, really that, that's, that's something that's probably being decided on a much yeah. higher level than you and I. The last question I have here for you is just, you know, we, we sort of did your wish list of what you'd like to see happen with ufology and where we need to go. But I guess, you know, just to put on your, your prognosticator cap, you know, where do you think this is going to go? Where do you see things unfolding over the next, you know, decade or two or three? And, you know, where are we going to be at? 10 or 20, 30 years from now as far as the UFO question goes. I mean, if I was doing this show in the 1960s, I don't think me or the guest would believe that I'd be talking to them <laughs> in 2009 and we'd be pretty much right where we were in the 60s. So, <laughs> I mean, are we going to be in that same position or are we going to know some more information, I, you think? I haven't the faintest idea is my first reaction to that question. I, I just have really no idea what what will happen. That would just be pure guesswork. Yeah. I honestly don't know. Yeah. All sorts of things could happen. There's all sorts of uh, possibilities. But are you hopeful? Let's put it this way then. Are you hopeful? I'm always hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always hopeful. Okay. And just stay healthy as as your source told you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's just hope, because I can't really take much more of this waiting. <laughs> well, I, I, I tell you, Tim, I mean, you mentioned the 1960s and, and 2009. 
quite honestly, there was more intelligent speculation in, in many quarters at that time in the media about all sorts of things. And, I've, you know, you look at some of the, you know, there's big articles, say in 1961, Big, serious articles about the subject in the New York Times with all the people like Admiral Helen Carter, you know, yeah. to CIA, um, all, all sorts of um, military strategists, intelligence specialists coming forward with, with that fantastic organization, uh, Kehoe's organization, NICAP. Um, we were much further ahead then than we are now, much further ahead Absolutely. until, of course, NICAP was infiltrated by CIA. Yeah, well, we had Andruffel on back in February, and, and uh, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I don't think ufology's ever recovered from that early 1970s period where the Condon Report came out, James McDonald yep. died, and then NICAP folded. Like, those three yep. events really, yes. uh, I think, just completely took uf ufology off the rails. Yes. It's it, been very effective, hasn't it? Abs <laughs> absolutely. And they just haven't recovered yet. And um, I'm hopeful that someday they will, but at this point, it's just so splintered science, and the academics don't want to get involved, and, and everything else that's a problem. So we'll, we'll see what how it unfolds, I guess. Yeah. As I said, uh, Need to Know came out around 2007. What can we expect coming out from you in the future? Well, you know, Tim, um, I'm, I'm still recovering from that book. It was such hard work getting together all the research material, my own research material, and and, and, and from others, of course, bringing it all together. I'm actually standing in my my um, my study, as it were. There's still debris from all that lying around, and I'm <laughs> in the process of trying to refile hundreds of intelligence papers, uh, various documents, various books, various uh, quotations, lots of research material. And until I've got all my stuff in order, and I know where it is, and I know where to find it. I, I won't even be able to really contemplate uh, doing anything else. But um, I, I obviously, you know, I, I don't have any specific plans at the moment. But um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not through yet. That's for sure. Awesome. That's good to know. And uh, just another little side note here. I didn't realize you were such an accomplished musician until I read your bio here on the website. That's amazing <laughs> stuff. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm still on the fiddle, but uh, alas, I don't get as much work as uh, as I used to, partly due to recession, but other circumstances as well, all sorts of things in the profession is, is changing. But um, yes, no, I'm still a professional violinist as, as, as well as an author and lecturer and broadcaster and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised by this just amazing hit list of people that you've uh, that you've recorded for Phil Collins, Depeche Mode, mm -hmm. George Harrison, Elton John, Paul McCartney. Did you get ever get yeah. to meet any of these guys, or you just tape? Oh Lord, yes. Oh wow. Yes, yes. Um, I went to McCartney's uh, his studio. He he had a, um, a studio down in Sussex, which was a converted windmill. That's when he was with Linda, and uh, we recorded. Um, couple of tracks, one of which is, is, is a super thing. It's called, um, gosh, what's it called? I've forgotten. Only Love Remains, that track. It's one of my favorite uh, oh, wow. tracks that he wrote. Um, and we, I think we did it in one take. It was just one of those very spontaneous things. McCartney was singing along with it and everything, and it just worked like a dream, you know. And he was very nice. He's a very nice guy. I've worked with him on another album and stuff. He's, he's a genuinely decent person, you know. Yeah. 
and I thoroughly enjoyed that. He wasn't particularly interested in uh, UFOs, but he knew of my work in that field. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll hopefully just keep an eye out for more stuff from you in, in the future as far as UFO books and, and stuff go. And, of course, folks can definitely pick up Need to Know and a number of your other books, and they can get them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, go to the bookstore, ask them to order it, or uh, go to your website, of course, timothygood.co.uk, and uh, you know they'll be able to pick it up through that stuff too. So, And, and as you said, keep an eye out for future stuff from you, right? Well, hopefully, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. I mean, certainly keep an eye out, but uh, I, I can't promise anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. Near, don't in be the, in the near future. Put it that way. Yeah, we don't want people writing you, pressuring you to hurry up and print something. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I'd like to know what what um, your listeners think. I sh- I should uh, concentrate on. You see, my two um, I would say sort of specialities within the subject are alien contacts actual encounters, not so much abductions, but encounters, yeah. you know, covering the whole the whole gamut of, of uh, types of encounter, from abductions to encounters with all sorts of beings. That, that's uh, been my fascination um, always. Also, um, the military intelligence and, the, you know, that, those, those aspects, because I think that's very, very important. And, and I think as far as the general public is concerned and the media, well, you know, you can't start off at the deep end with books on um, contact stories and everything, because they're just likely to ridicule. But it's much, much harder to ridicule, you know, say a book like Above Top Secret. So I started with that. Then I went to um, Alien Liaison, which uh, has some pretty dramatic stuff in, a lot of which I still stand by, uh, incidentally. But that's that's another story. And then Alien Base, which was about Earth's encounters with extraterrestrials. So which should I concentrate on next, do you think? What should be a theme? I'd be glad to hear from from anybody. Absolutely, yeah. Well, folks should definitely uh, write to you or write to me and let let us know what you think. And and, uh, it'll be interesting to see what they have to say. Personally, I kind of like the the more alien encounter type stuff. But that's because, you know, I think uh, because I've been in this for so long that... I, I'm well aware that the government <laughs> and the military know what's going on. So the, the mm-hmm. more sort of information, like what you were talking about earlier with the uh, you know alien bases and stuff like that, is is fascinating to me. I gotta say first, Timothy, uh, I gotta thank you first just for giving us some extra time here. You know, we were supposed to do 90 minutes, but we've done two hours, and I really appreciate that you gave us the extra time because we were really cooking here on a lot of great subjects, and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, as I said, it was an interview that was a long time coming. I wish I had spoken to you earlier, and I'm already looking forward to speaking to you again since I've enjoyed this conversation so much. The book is Need to Know, UFOs, the Military, and Intelligence. That's the latest book, of course. There's tons of other ones, as Timothy just said. Check them out, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, timothygood.co.uk. Fascinating conversation here. I'm sure the listeners are going to really enjoy it. Just a wealth of unique and really thought-provoking information. You do an amazing job of, of really uncovering some tremendous stuff that you just don't hear anywhere else. So i got to thank you once again for coming on the show, Timothy. I look forward to uh, speaking to you again in the future. It's my pleasure, Tim. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Timothy Good. Loved talking to him. Already looking forward to bringing him back on the show to discuss more issues and aspects surrounding the UFO phenomenon. 
You can find out more on Timothy Good at the website, www.timothygood.co.uk. Pretty simple, all one word, timothygood.co.uk. Check it out. Moving right along, let's dive into BOA Audio listener feedback. We've got three emails here, all of them pretty short. So we'll just uh, go ping, ping, ping and take care of them as we go down the list here. The first one comes from Matt in Oak Park, Illinois. Here's what he has to say. The recent triple header with Bruce Rocks got me thinking about other representations of UFOs and the paranormal in other media, specifically comics. I have an issue of EC Comics Weird Science Number 3, featuring a fictional account of a wave of UFO sightings. This and other sci-fi, horror, adventure, and superhero comics feature elements of the esoteric that are analogous with all kinds of accounts, reports, and folklore. So how about it? Comic books and wrestling next season. Thanks for another great season, Tim and the BOA team. Matt from Oak Park, Illinois. As I said to Matt when we wrote him back, for the last couple seasons we've been trying to do a comic book episode but more based around the comics code of the uh, 1940s and 50s, I think it was. I'm not positive on the dates. But the guest fell through. We're still trying to track him down and all that stuff. So it had to be tabled for the time being, much like the wrestling episode. With regards to Esoterica in comic books, once again, like I told Matt, I'm not even sure who I'd look for in that regard. So if anyone has a suggestion on someone who could speak to Esoterica in comic books, that would be great. It's definitely something I would consider for an episode of BOA comic books in my opinion, much like pro wrestling, does fall within the realm of esoterica. Anything that is uh, ridiculed, shunned, and marginalized by the mainstream, I mean, that is pretty esoteric, and comic books and wrestling do fall into that realm as well. Definitely two topics I will consider for Season 5. Thank you, Matt, for writing in. Of course, as I noted at the end of the previous edition of BOA Audio, we want to hear your guest suggestions and topic suggestions my inbox is already overflowing with guests who want to be on Season 5 and people who want certain guests to appear next season on the show. But I want to hear from all you folks so I can start to parse down the list of Season 5 guests. So send those over to me. You'll hear the contact info in a moment or just go to BOA and click contact. Next email comes from JB, a hometown listed, merely JB. Tim, can't download your show with NewsGator feed demo really like your show would hate to miss it due to a technical problem i was using juice but it doesn't work with windows vista jb i also wrote jb back i went on a wave of email responses last week so most everybody who wrote to me should have gotten a response by now and if you haven't write to me again let me know it might have slipped through the window there of emails that i wrote back but pretty much everybody who you're hearing from here this week has received their response And as I said to JB, I am completely confused. I have no idea what NewsGator feed demo is or juice. I'm going to look into it. I'm going to find out what the problem is. I do think the BOA podcast feed is tailored specifically for iTunes. So maybe it doesn't work on some of these third-party carriers. I'm not positive. Uh, If anyone has any insight on that, let me know. I'm going to look into it and hopefully have it fixed soon. All right, third email here comes from the mysterious Mr. X. No hometown listed, obviously. He's Mr. X. We're going to dub him as from Parts Unknown, though, because, hey, if your name is Mr. X, chances are you hail from Parts Unknown. Here's what Mr. X has to say. 
Hey Tim, first up, I love the show BOA and I've been listening from the beginning. On hearing your last interview you did with Stanton Friedman, I ordered his latest book through his website and I just received it the other day and he even personally signed it for me. Now that's class. Okay, here's my suggestion and this has always annoyed me. It's when you introduce yourself at the start of each show, the part where you go, and now here's your host, Tim Banal. Dude, introducing yourself is weird. You gotta get someone else just for that part. Okay, I hope you take my suggestion as a lighthearted jive, because that's how it's intended. All the best, Mr. X. Thanks for writing in, Mr. X. Sorry to burst your bubble, but I don't want to ruin my own mystery completely, but I can assure you that the voiceover guy there, the introducer of the program, is not me. It is a member of the BOA staff, and uh, that's why it's not me speaking in the third person or anything like that. I'm not sure how you would have confused that. Maybe our voiceover guy does sound like me. But I can assure you I am not the intro voice of the program. It is another mysterious character at BOA. But I don't want to reveal his name because you're Mr. X and he's Mr. V, let's say. There you have it. Three emails taken care of here this week. Pecking away at the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. No way I'm going to be able to feature everybody who's written into us this summer, but I'm going to do my best. A thousand apologies to Jim, who wrote a lengthy email and a humorous one. We're going to try and get to that one next week. I know I promised him we'd do it on this week's episode, but we're kind of in a bind to get the show put out for you, so I didn't want to take too much time on the listener emails, and I figured with three really good pithy emails that cover a lot of different topics, that might be the best way to go here this week. So thank you to Matt in Oak Park, Illinois. I will consider comics for a topic on BOA next season. Thank you, JB, no hometown listed on the news, Gator feed, demo, error. Anyone who notices an error regarding BOA, please let me know. Sometimes these little technical details slip through the cracks on me. I am a one-man operation with regard to the technical aspects of BOA. So if we miss something and you catch it and you let us know, it's hugely appreciated because that way all the other great BOA listeners aren't going to suffer as you have. And finally, thanks to Mr. X inquiring about our voiceover guy. No worries, Mr. X. I did take it as a lighthearted jibe. I take no offense at that. As I said, we want to hear from all the great BOA Audio listeners, whether it's something you want me to say here at the end of the program, a question, a comment, a guest suggestion, a topic suggestion. Now's the time to strike with those specifically because we're putting together the list for Season 5. So, how do you get in touch with me? That's simple. There's three easy methods. First, go to BOA and click the Contact button. Second, merely write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Third, join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Those are the three methods contact button, email, and the forum. Any of those can put your correspondence into my hands, not just for future editions of BOA audio listener feedback, but also to help us shape season five as the process begins to create the next great season of BOA audio. Up next, of course, comes the thanks portion of the show. The amazing, enlightened, infamous, and esteemed BOA staff, they have been holding up the website here as things have been sporadic at best on BOA Audio this summer. They've been putting out top-notch reading material. Let me run down the list of contributors and columnists at BOA. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Seniuk, and A.M. Murphy. 
Normally we do a little bit of a blurb here on all the different stuff going on at BOA, but we're trying to push, push, push this episode out to you as fast as possible. And since we've been off the air for about a little over two weeks, there's been a lot going on at BOA, and I just don't have the time to talk about all the great columns that have been posted there. So go there. There's all new columns, sometimes maybe even two new columns, and probably three new from Leslie because she writes for us weekly at BOA covering a plethora of different topics, many of which fall through the cracks here on the program. We don't get a chance to talk about the staff at BOA. Definitely does talk about them in their columns, a lot of fringe topics, and a lot of focused topics on what's going on in the world of the paranormal today. We've been saying it for years here at the end of the program, and it's starting to take hold. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Benall of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And if for some reason this is the first time you've heard the show, the URL for the website is www.binnallofamerica.com. Check it out. Before we preview Webster Tarpley and Phase 2 of the Final Four of Season 4, it's time for me to turn to you and ask for some donations. This is definitely the longest season of BOA Audio ever. It's featuring the most guests ever, and it's certainly the longest chronologically of any season we've done. I mean, we started October 20th. Here it is, August 10th, and we're going to roll all the way through to August 31st. So we're talking about nearly 46 weeks of work that's gone into season four here. Why do I talk about all this? Simply because that cost me not just time, but also money, and that's why I turn to you, the great BOA Audio listeners here at the end of the program, and ask you for a donation. How do you do that? That's simple. Go to BOA or the BOA Audio Archive page and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to the PayPal service. They'll walk you through the process. Pretty simple stuff. Not too hard at all. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards BOA Audio and Banal of America to keep the program and the website up and running, ad-free, and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. You heard the teaser at the beginning of the program, but let me give you a little more information on what's coming down the pike for you next week on the program. It's Phase 2 of the Final Four of BOA Audio Season 4. Our guest is geopolitical genius, parapolitical powerhouse Webster Tarpley. He's the author of a number of amazing books, two significant ones we're going to be talking about, Surviving the Cataclysm, a reissue, as well as 9-11 Synthetic Terror, one of the very best, if not the very best, 9-11 books ever written. Let me give you a little thumbnail look at what Webster's going to be talking about here on the program next week. It's a jam-packed session of the program And it is definitely classic BOA style, old school in a way. Webster comes from the Stan Friedman school of guests in the sense that you ask a question and then get the hell out of the way and let Webster rock and roll. And that's how it's going to be. You'll probably hear me talk less than I have on any episode of BOA Audio this season. But I do get plenty of questions in and Webster really dishes out the details on this stuff. We're going to hear all about the financial crisis, how to get out of it for regular people and the world, how it ended up starting, and who was really behind the whole thing, and is there an agenda behind it. We're going to hear about how the geopolitical landscape has changed to an America versus Russia slash China situation instead of a U.S. versus Middle East style conflict. We're going to find out how the leadership of the United States went from Bush and company to Obama and company, especially considering how many in the parapolitical community 
considered Bush to have a stranglehold of power. You know, how did that transition take place if, you know, we were under such tyrannical rule of George Bush? West is going to talk about Barack Obama and how he is the banker's puppet. That's what he says. 9-11 and the 9-11 truth movement and why the truth movement seems to have gotten derailed in the last few years. That's some fascinating stuff. And we're going to ponder the question of, are we past the point of trying to stop a new world order? Are we just shit out of luck at this point? That's the real concern of a lot of people listening to the program. That's what I'm concerned about. Webster's going to talk me off the ledge next week on the program. I already got an email from somebody who heard about the upcoming guest, Webster Tarpley, since we announced it on the Twitter feed. And he sort of remarked about it being a political episode. So let me just clear this up for you right away. It is a political episode. We do talk politics. More specifically, Webster talks politics. I asked some questions, and that's about it. But the great thing about Webster Tarpley is he's really against just about everybody. Bush, Obama, Democrats, Republicans, Ron Paul, everyone. So I have a feeling that whoever you like is going to get stomped on. It's an equal opportunity stomping, courtesy of Webster Tarpley here next week on the program. Now, I probably shouldn't say anything, and I don't want to make any promises here, but since Webster was on the program previously on VOA Audio in a special session, which actually is not included on the archive page, it fell out of the archive page, and I never got around to putting it back up and just realized it when I talked to Webster again recently here for the final four of season four. I'm thinking about digging that out and sticking it on the end of next week's program since it is only an hour interview with Webster, and then we have about an hour and a half that we taped three or four years ago that a lot of people haven't heard because it's not on the podcast feed, and as I said, it's not on the BOA Audio archive page. So I may dig that out, clean it out, take out some of the stuff that's a little more topical at the time, and leave in some of the stuff that was all about the 9-11 event because we talk quite a bit about that on the special session. So if I can find some time, and I'm suspecting that I'll have plenty of time starting Wednesday evening. I will take a look at that and see what I can do for folks and hopefully tack on a little bit of extra material on the end of next week's edition of the program. Then, of course, in two weeks, we're going to have a massive A-list name, legend, and Hall of Famer in the world of ufology and abduction research. Don't want to reveal the name to you just yet. That's going to be taped this coming Wednesday. I will release the name as soon as possible on the forum and the Twitter feed. And then in three weeks, it is, of course, the VOA Audio season finale. Since you have stuck around this long, since you are a hardcore VOA Audio listener, since you are a true supporter of the program and listen to me ramble here for 10 minutes plus at the end of the program, I'm going to reward your diligence and faith by revealing the VOA Audio season finale guest right now. He is the legendary, infamous, and trailblazing John Lear. We're talking about a man who inspired Art Bell and George Knapp to explore the UFO phenomenon and one of the godfathers of Area 51. And it is, trust me, my friends, an amazing conversation. We cover a lot of 1980s ufology. John Lear was a huge player in the world of ufology in the 1980s and early 90s. He was right there in the thick of it of the scene back then and interacted with a lot of big names that we just don't hear much about anymore. Paul Benowitz, Bill Moore, Bill Cooper. These are guys that John Lear knew, he hung out with, he talked to them, and we're going to find out all about them via John Lear. Then we're going to get into a whole bunch of other stuff. I don't want to talk too much about it right now, but I wanted to reveal the name for the diligent, hardcore, and super BOA audio supporters who stick around to the end of the program. 
I really appreciate that. I sometimes wonder if I'm just talking to myself here at the end of the show, but I know that's not the case because we get a ton of emails from folks. And for those folks who do stick around, thank you so much. This is your reward. You're going to be richly rewarded even more in three weeks when you hear the two-hour-plus John Lear interview on the season finale of BOA Audio. But until then, that's just the revelation for you. And on that note, we close the book here on Phase 1 of the Final Four of Season 4. Big, big thanks once again to Timothy Good, And, of course, I want to thank the great BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. I really appreciate that you've stuck around for so long and supported us through what has been kind of a tumultuous season here. Some days were posted on Wednesday. Some days were posted on Monday. Some days Sunday. Some days Saturday. It's been a little bit crazy here for Season 4, but hopefully the quality of the guests and the content in general has not wavered. And we're trying our best to prove that point here with the final four of season four. I want to go out with a bang to support the BOA audio listeners. You guys are awesome. Without you, there would be no program. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. I can't thank you enough for your support and help over the last four years. And hopefully you enjoy the remaining portions of the final four of season four, including next week's interview with Webster Tarpley. I'm about to lose my voice, so I'm just going to sign off here. I've talked quite a bit and really quite enough, I think. Until next time, this is Tim and all, thanking you for listening and signing off.